He turned out to me and said, look, you need to get me off. If you don't, you're going to get killed. So because of who these two people were, the reputation they had, I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I'm going to have to just go in there and say... So because he put in my head, I went in there and said, yes, it, it was me, even though I haven't... Because I thought, well, if I try and get him off, it'll save me. I was standing in the middle of a punishment cell with a towel ripped in half round my neck because I thought people were coming in to kill me. The sentence, I had to hold on to the bars. I couldn't control my body. I was, I think I was actually in shock. I was like, that holding on for dear life. All kinds of protests going on in the jail. Three people died in a pad fire. They tried to get in with a miniature fire hose like that. And uh, when they did manage to get in, they're not interested in putting a fire off. They're trying to suffocate me with the fire ex extinguisher. They've got me up against the wall like that. The hose right in my face and squirting it right in my face. This is how cold they are, Carlos. They burst into the cell and said, your dad's dead. Laughing their heads off and ran out and slammed the door. They tried to actually set me up to be killed. What? Someone gets called down to a gate and said, he's in for killing a baby. Next minute, me pack gets dressed. I seen the kid go up on the fours and dive head first down the concrete stairs to actually... So I'm watching someone get boiling up right being pulled straight over their head. That one. So the one where the mist comes in? Yeah. And it fills yeah. the cells? Your bed feels like it's, be, it's being wet. That's how bad it is. When you're driving on the moors, this building appears out, out of the mist and engraved in the gates, abandoned ye all hope who entered, something like that. It was a horrible gaff run by a hardcore exclusion, must have been army. About 1966, I went into care on a full-time basis. I wasn't wanted at all. I mean, they wanted to, to, to take me as, as a child, but my mother went, no, no one's having them. I don't want anyone giving them a good life. I got picked up as a child and it had my head smashed off in the wall. Arguably, you were a vulnerable suspect, and in today's day and age, yes, you would have been, you would have had a lawyer and an advocate. Okay, yeah, he's a petty criminal, which I admit. Does that make me a murderer? Mm. No. I'm here today with Ray, and if you go back to our very first podcast guest, Jamie Moncane, did 34 years in California prison for a crime he hadn't committed, which was murder. That's the longest we've ever served, an innocent person served, that we've interviewed. Ray, and I was spellbound by his story. I was watching it on Ricky Colleen's channel, so a huge shout-out to Ricky Colleen. I'll put a link in the description box to Ricky's channel. He's got lots of good stuff there. But Ray did 36 years. 36 years. Can you imagine? I mean, I served six, and I thought that was the right amount of time for me. I think if I'd done 10, I would have gone... A bit cuckoo, but to do 36, it just beggars belief and to be innocent and the, the, the frustration with the system as well. We'll have to put those on silent. The frustration with the system and then the fact that they think, you know, you're not showing any remorse because you're not admitting your guilt, so we're going to punish you further. 
stuck in a catch-22 situation. But Ray's story is absolutely jaw-dropping. And Stephanie's here today as well. And Stephanie, what is your job title? So um, currently like an independent um, death investigation reviewer. So um, I was um, in a career working at the coroner's office investigating deaths for the police and the coroner. I've investigated over 5,000 deaths. And I've also have uh, an academic background in forensic psychology, forensic um, science, and more recently forensic medicine. So I'm hoping to complete a PhD in that sort of field. So my research interest is, it does surround uh, miscarriages of justice, but also um, death scene reconstruction. So looking at bloodstain pattern analysis, wound patterns, victimology and suspectology. So that's me in a nutshell. And we're going to bring Stephanie's expertise in throughout this interview, but we're going to start out. Huge thank you to you guys for coming. And, and Thank you for having us. And Ray, can you just tell me the events that led up to this false situation? Uh, what actually happened in uh, October 1980, uh, we were walking down the back of N Twister Lights, which used to be at the top of Upper Parliament Street. Uh, and we had a copper tank. We were approached by police. Uh, we were all asked, I can't remember what they actually asked, to be honest. Uh, but I was let go, because I, I actually lived in the flat in N Twister Lights. But they took the other two to the Wavy Tree Road police station. Now, one of the people uh, turned round, he wasn't charged, asked to speak to the police before they actually let him go. During that discussion, he said, I had jobs to do, I was going to be armed. And he said one of the jobs was going to be a betting shop. So then, they questioned him outside my front door in, in the flats and, and twist the lights. He said I was actually there, but I can't be... We call it, to be honest. Uh, and then, a couple of days later, they actually raided the flat. But I actually wasn't there then. And uh, the stuff that they were told was passed on to the uh, murder squad. A uh, three-page statement was made by uh, to a police officer in Waverty Road Police Station in which he was, uh, they were given jobs. They said we were going to do. He said it was going to be armed. They named the job in Bellevue, they named the job in Park Road or Park Lane. I'm like, that, wow. And I didn't know this. It was hidden for over 20 years amongst 201 witness statements which were not given to their defence. So when this crime happened, I was actually staying with a girl in uh, Mill Street in in the Dingle End of Liverpool Race. And... uh, the actually morning this is supposed to have happened, we've got up, we've had an argument with each other because at the time I didn't know she had been with the person I was actually charged with. So there was a big argument between us over over, over that. Uh, I went to shops down below because the flat was above a shop. Uh, I bought a newspaper, fire lighters to heat the fire. Now, in them days, you're going back in the 1980s, you had to heat, heat up the hot water on the fire. So fire lighters and, and the paper and went back. Uh, I actually 
stayed in until the afternoon. I was on bail. I was signing on at the Admiral Street police station out here at the time. I had to sign on at six o'clock every night. Now, if I'd done this, would I be daft enough to go and sign on each night? I would have been a cold-hearted, callous person. So I was signing on each night. So I had to use uh, uh, jeans to go and sign on one day because my jeans are bust. So because of that, uh, I wasn't aware that we were even being looked for. I actually left their flat to go back to my cousin's where I should have been staying in uh, Eversley Street. And uh, I've gone in, went upstairs to the bedroom to get changed. And the bedroom was in, in a mess. I thought, well, that's my cousin's two kids uh, being in the bedroom, messing up. Then I'm walking along Lodge Lane and they tried to state I was going into a barbershop, which isn't true. My cousin lived down the bottom of Lodge Lane facing a, a Rundle school in, in a flat then. So I was going down to it to let him know that, no, I wasn't doing nothing. And uh, I was jumped on. I had a car doing mad U-turn in the middle of Lodge Lane. Now, it's like that. You no know, cars. People just drive on there and don't give a damn. So I had a big mad screech. <laughs> Next minute, I've got people jumping on me, putting me in the car. I'm, I'm like, that, yeah, what's, what's going on? You'll find out when you get there to Admiral Street. So when we got into Admiral Street, uh, they went, you're arrested on suspicion of murder. I'm like, that, then, wow, what's, what's going on here? You know what I mean? So I didn't know until then why I'd been jumped on, targeted. They tried to say, yeah, we, we told them. They didn't tell me. They said, you'll find out when you get to the cop shop. So when I did get to the cop shop, I was then, I was put in a holding cell. Two, the, two police come in the cell, asked me certain questions where, where I was. I explained I'd been out the night before, got dropped off by one of my cousins in the early hours of the morning. I'd been out in the Yoruba and the clock, so they dropped me off. I'm a bit worse for wear at that night because of the alcohol. Uh, and uh, they've asked me a few questions. They've asked me where the girl lived, so I told them. I explained what the front door looked like because it was all like patchy and it needed painting. So they've left, gone away, come back again a second time and asked me whether they had the right flat. And I said, yeah. What they didn't tell me is they already had the girl upstairs being questioned. So I had no idea at the time that she was in. And then nothing was written down. So I had two interviews in the cell. Someone was next door and there was a couple of cells further down because I actually spoke to the, to the kid next door. Don't know his name. I said, what are you here for? He said, same as you. He said, I've given them names of people out and people inside who I think might have done this crime. And I went, oh, I wonder if you put mine in. So uh, they then took me out. I don't know how long it was later on. They took me into a holding room next door to the charge desk. And these two coppers who come in, these two pictures on the on, on the, uh, the desk. And then they started playing good cop and bad cop. And one of them was like, banging on the table, shouting at me, that's you and that's your mate. From the information we've got, you're the heavy man, he's the uh, the bag man. 
I'm like, that, wow, where are you getting this kind of information from? It was going on and on and on. And then it, they jumped up, one of them's grabbed me, and we've had a struggle. They've ran out the room and come back in the room five minutes later. That's how you, uh, you attack the victim. So from there, they were not interested whether I was in innocence or not, or whether I was telling them a load of lies. It was like that, that's you, that's him. I've got 10 years left in the job. He's got 15 years left in the job. You will not be out until we actually retire from the job. So I was just getting uh, berated. And I've never been in that situation before in, in a cop shop. I've been nicked before, you know what I mean? And I've never been treated like that before. And I'm like, that, is this because of like prior to the Toxteth riots? Now you're talking, there was a lot of uh, tension in the community at uh, this time where they're uh, nearly kicking off. And it's only years later, we've seen a few videos of community ac activists who turned around and said, back in the day, if you were stopped by police, you had to behave in a certain way. Otherwise, they jump on you, they falsely charge you, they take you somewhere for a ride, beat you up and dump you. Now, and this all come out when we started getting stuff because we had a, a chief constable for the Black uh, Officers Federation of report. He admitted they were targeting the black community in Liverpool late then. You know what I mean? So we just thought, wow. Is this why we've been, I've, I've been pulled in? Because what people didn't realise is on on the Thursday in the actual betting shop, two people had put on false bets or say they put on false bets. So there was an argument between two people, the manager and the the staff behind the counter. Uh, so they're arguing. Threats were made. Police were called. So when police turned up, there was four people outside. One was one of my relatives, his best mate, and these two other people. So they've gone in. I don't know if they've gone in the office, but whatever happened, they were supposed to have sorted it out and he agreed to come back the next day so we could speak to the area manager and see what he could do. But he was scared. He actually asked to say, can you get someone else to uh, take over, he didn't feel safe. You know what I mean? So, and then other people were in there and they tried to say they eliminated people within 24 hours. I'm like, that. no way. How could you eliminate somebody who's got form? Four people were accused of being a gang and had form for PBC robbing betting shops. So, with that information, they should their alibi should have been scrutinised and mean scrutinised proper. But they were within twenty four hours. They were like, let go, nothing. And yet, thing is, you got the betting shop here at the back of the betting shop. We didn't, I didn't know at the time. It used to be a pub at the back of the betting shop. So Buttermere Street's here, Lodge Lane's here, and nobody's seen anybody going in, and nobody's seen any anybody coming out, which is weird. You've got a busy junction, right? You got the betting shop, you got the bingo wall, across you got the boundary pub, then you had a garage then where two people were working on, on, on the roof somewhere. And then there's a little shop now, but that wasn't a shop, it used to be a community toilet. 
So where you've got Buttermere Street, which is the side of the betting shop, there's an entrance there, and there's a, like an iron shutter, which leads upstairs, which is now a boxing club, but it used to be like a nightclub and a snooker hall. Now, we don't know if there's any way they, they could get downstairs from there or come out at other door, because... And an eyewitness who was on top of a bus said he's seen two people trying to crouch into a doorway, which I don't know if it's a doorway to the betting shop or the doorway next door, to go upstairs to the nightclub. And uh, he thought someone was trying to try the lock. And uh, we went there the other year and actually went round and started taking a few pictures. And somebody said, oh, like that. what are you doing? Well, we, we, we didn't mention, because then at the back, there's a big iron, like, shutter. And we actually thought that might have been the way they actually got out. Because what pe- we didn't know until we read the actually 201 witness statements that weren't disclosed. Three girls were seen trying to go in and out with keys. Now, the keys have never been found. The gate to the betting shop was a jar on the pavement. So people had to walk past to get past it. And what's funny is a geezer used to help out at at the betting shop, marking the board. He wasn't actually employed, he used to help out. Uh, he went there that that morning, looked through the letterbox, seen the light on, shouted through, didn't get no answer. Someone went past him and tried to get in. He said, oh, it's okay, it'll be open later on. So this man, if he thought something was wrong, why did he wait for an employee to turn up half an hour later? Now, this man was seen on the corner of Upper Parliament Street talking to a witness from an other betting shop on Upper Parliament Street. The news agent fella come up with the papers that were, weren't collected by the deceased and seen the man, give him the papers, and then the woman who worked, one of the women come up, he then went back to the door with this female and uh, looked through, shouted through, didn't get no answer. That's when they decided to call the police. So did he know something was going on? Because he would have been in the betting shop the day before when all the actually threats were made. Now, one of the original suspects, we don't know if it's him. I can't say for sure. But the alibis just seem weird, like they've concocted. He lived in a flat, so I understand you could go through one door of the pub from Buttermere Street and come out on Lawton Street, the opposite side, where one of them lived in a flat with a girl. Now, the girl's flat, who it was, was not allowed into the bedroom. There was four or five in the bedroom discussing the crime. She was not allowed into the bedroom in her own flat which she actually rented. So she heard some stuff, ran away to her brothers that lived uh, the other other end of Liverpool, late in the Dingle End towards Park Road, because she was scared. We've actually met this person, spoke to them uh, a few months last year, and uh, the boyfriend was more concerned was with us trying to find out DNA rather than uh, telling the truth. Emma took her to the police station because she was concerned about, you need to be honest, people in the community were pulling people, asking them what they'd said to the police. So pressure was already being put on, on their people to actually explain what they said. So she was fearful for her life. Uh, went down there, moved out of Liverpool. It's been all over, over the country. We spoke to her. It's like hiding something. 
uh, and it's just like trying to get people to come forward is being proven hard work but going back right to this I'm I'm there now I think they put me back in the cell after they threatened me and all that then they took me out again and questioned me again and that's when I started just giving them what shit they wanted because I had no idea what they had in store for me had they I mean? told you at this point, Ray, the circumstances by which this person had been murdered? Yeah, they were They were actually feeding me information. You know what I mean? Uh, was it a robbery gone wrong? Is that what Well, that what we don't you? know because uh, we have, I've only seen a, a couple of pictures of, of the crime scene. Now, we understand there was money bags lying on the floor. There was... Footprints on a lino. We don't know if he was if he was tied up proper or what. Uh, one of the safes was open. We we understand the other one they couldn't get in because it was in 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 a safe and it was it was on some kind of timer. Uh, so I just fed them a bunch of lies just to give them what they wanted. I was like a kid. I'd actually grown up in care. I'd been in in and out of care because I wasn't wanted by my mum. My dad wanted me, but my dad couldn't care for me because he suffered from epilepsy. So he was kept in Raynhill Hospital for several years. And then he, one of his sisters took him out, but because she couldn't cope, he went back in and then he went to Versacli and that's where he passed away. So about 1966, I went into care on a full-time basis. I wasn't wanted at home, but everyone else was kept at home. So uh, I was like different care homes until I went into a, one where I actually stayed. I went to Croxteth Junior School. Then I moved to Tubrook. I went to Lister Drive Junior School. Then I went to West Derby, uh, Bankfield Road. And the school was like, I was in a kid's home here. The gate to the third, fourth and fifth year was right outside the gate. The second, first and second year was behind the kid's home. So I used to do a bump, but I was seeing a psychiatrist and, and all that at the time. He was saying I was damaged and I, I did not un understand what he meant. He said I was emotionally damaged as a child. Uh, so I grew up, I used to do any, anything just to, to be part of a, of a group. You know what I mean? I don't know why. I probably I f I felt that I needed to be ac accepted by, by people because I didn't have anybody that give a damn about me. I didn't meet my dad's family till about 1977. So I wasn't aware of who they were. I mean, they wanted to, to, to take me as, as a child, but my mother went, no, no one's having them. I don't want anyone giving them a good life. Okay. I know it sounds harsh. Okay. She's passed away. She passed away last year. She did say, sorry. But then we fell out because I, I started a job. I got through probation. Uh, I was working at a recycling plant. And for a couple of years, everything went sweet, no problems. And then suddenly someone else turned up. He was on licence, but not from Liverpool. He was from somewhere else in, in the country down south. And he lived in the same area as my family, up and speak. So he started coming in, showing people stuff on, I think, WhatsApp. Next minute, I st I'm, st I'm getting targeted by the whole workforce. I thought, no, nah, I'm not having this. I had to walk away. So I've walked away, and uh, I haven't been working 
since then. So going back to the police station, they've took me out a couple more times and I've given them a load of shit. I just made up anything just to keep them happy. I mean, I haven't done this crime. And then they've gone away. I've got a, I have a speech defect as well, but it only comes out in certain ways. And uh, they come back and question me a, a couple more times and I just kept filling them with, with crap and they were saying this and that to me. So I never thought nothing of the consequences of uh, my actions and that's the type of person I, I was then. I didn't think of the consequences of what might happen to uh, me. I just thought, right, yeah, I just want to be part of what whatever. How old were you, Ray, at that point? I was uh, 22 when I was uh, arrested for this. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was no angel. I'd done Boston as a kid, 15. Got in, into a gang fight with uh, others and someone got, got hurt. And I was the only one who got arrested. I got Boston for that. And then I got Boston again for, like, robbing out of uh, shops. Then I've done two sentences of YP, six months, for burglaries. Uh, and then I got six months for being passenger in a stolen car. And that's when I found out that if you were from Toxtuff and you were mixed race or black, didn't matter what you went to court for, you weren't getting out. So uh, I got the six months for passenger in the car, come out, I was only out four weeks, and then got, got uh, this, you know what I mean? So <laughs> when you haven't done it. And I've been fighting... Since then, uh, we both got charged. We went to... How long were you interrogated for? I think it was a couple of days. A couple, uh, of, couple days. of days. yeah. yeah. Two days. I think no the, uh, sleep? Best... Were, you, were you losing your mind at that point? Uh, no, I just... Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, whether I was losing it or, or what. I was just like, I think I was being put under that much stress by them. I mean, years ago, uh, if I was un under stress, my speech would be terrible. And then I used to have to paint my body from head to toe white because I used to break out in in a rash. I used to have something called epidermis dermatitis. Uh, I think that stemmed from what happened at home as a, as a child. So being charged, being taken to the Bridewell. And the first day in the Bridewell, we were in the cell with one, two, three, at least four other people. The kid was sitting there. Chinese fellow was there, a kid in the corner, and a drunk there, coke used there, me here. So me and him are talking to each other. The kid in front of us asked us what we were in for. So we just said, he said he knew the family. All conversation went dead. They took him out and questioned him to see what we said. And then next minute later, the Chinese fellows made a statement. Wow. The kid in the corner made a statement. He knew, but it's, this is unreal. He's made a statement, and it's so detailed. It can only come from them. You know what I mean? So after that, every week we were going to call, people were being taken out the cell and being questioned about what we actually said ab about the crime. Then on remand, I just couldn't believe it. I caught two people in blatant conversation with someone that shouldn't have been talking and when we got the paperwork uh, to commit these have all made statements accusing me of speaking to them 
a third person was in the healthcare because in them days when you got charged, they put you in the healthcare to decide whether you'd be cathé or not. So we're in the healthcare. We're both in the cell. I'm that and he's that end. Then he got put from the cell on on a ward. You wouldn't put me on, on the ward. He said, we have 18 at you in a ward. There'd be nothing but aggro. <laughs> so he's speaking to someone every day. And the same kid pulled me in the bathhouse in the healthcare and said, you need to tell him to shut up because he's saying this and saying that. So when we got his statement, it's like it being reversed and all put on me. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happened is we both had the same brief. One week we appeared in court in April and an interview occurred with the police I had to get a new brief the week after because of what had been said by this other, other party and like that. Well, he was told to tell me, didn't. So I didn't know what had uh, been said for, for months. So by the time we come to trial, I thought, well, I can ex- explain myself. So the trial's gone ahead. First day, the jury's been dismissed because the prosecutor tried to say what, what one said against the other cannot be used, and you can't say that in an open court unless the person goes in the dock and gives evidence. So they brought in a second jury. That was thrown out within within a day. Something about, might have been a prison officer or a prison officer's wife or the police officer's wife on the jury. So they come in with a fair jury and just carried on as if nothing was new. So... The trial carried on right through. So we're in the cells. This is St. George's Hall. We used to come out of a the cell. There used to be a lift in, in the corner. They used to sit on the table there. So all the area was white. Now the cells were big square windows that had lined glass through so you could see through. The benches were about that high. And the cell I was in, it was a bench, wooden bench right atop the top. And like... Uh, Concrete, sorry, not concrete, uh, metal slats under with holes in so you, you could communicate. So we were talking to each other. And one day, when I just started my defence, he turned out to me and said, look, you need to get me off. If you don't, you're going to get killed by so-and-so and so-and-so. So because of who these two people were, the reputation they had, not just in the Liverpool Rates area, but in Walton and strange ways, I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble here. I'm going to have to just go in there and say, so because it, he put in my head, I went in there and said, yes, it, it was me, even though I haven't, you know what I mean? Because I thought, well, if I try and get him off, it'll save me. So he got found guilty. Uh, both went to Walton. We had to go back up three months later for the charge of robbery on a house in uh, Toxteth. So that I was guilty of. So three years each for that. And then I got moved to Manchester where as soon as I went in, the governor pulled me and said, you, I'm going to give you a chance. The minute you raise your head above the paraffin, your feet won't touch the floor. So after five days, I'm just leaning over the rope railing on on the wing I was on, which was D-wing. I'm trying to get a note over to my cousin, you know, to try and see if we'll get some burn off him. I heard some screws say, you black do you think you're there doing? I'm like, that, what? So I've looked down and I, 
I've, I've, I've turned around and gone, uh, who are you talking to, you, you white piece of So this PO come along then and said, get that down to my office. So I was sitting down to the to the twos because the ones used to be where the survey was on the block and that uh, in Manchester. So uh, I've walked in the office and he said, my name's Mr. So-and-so. When I treat you with, uh, with respect, I respect it back. And I looked at him for, well, you haven't treated me with respect. I said, when you uh, treat me like shit, I'm going to throw a, a bucket over, over your head. Uh, so it was just a figure of speech. So they went, get this ding down the block and give him it. So I was taken down the block. Hey, do you know what that sound means? Ooh, that's something I've been hearing a lot lately. I can't help but love that. That's what I hear when I make another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. The Pokemon business I've recently started with someone is absolutely thriving thanks to Shopify. Shopify accepts all kinds of payments and sometimes it's complex when you get on a platform, but their dashboard makes it completely simple. Covering all your sales channels from a shopfront-ready POS system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform, Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Insta, TikTok, and YouTube. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to award-winning help, and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. So when it comes to dealing with people all over the world, Shopify is absolutely enabling us to smash it with our Pokemon business. Before Shopify, our Pokemon card business was in the dark ages. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk slash Sean. Link in description box below this video on YouTube. Thanks for watching. Back to the podcast. Put into the first uh, holding cell, which used to hold cates. And uh, took my T-shirt off. He's in the pad with me, one of them. And he was several standing in the doorway. So I took the T-shirt off, got it back on. And he's punched me in, punched me in the face about four times. So I ripped the T-shirts off, hit them back. They've all come in and steamed in. Give me, give me a few digs. So they put me in front of the governor the next day, and his attitude was, "You've been kicking off now for twelve months. You've been given a life sentence of fifteen years. I'm make sure you do thirty years, and I'm going to make sure you get certified after it, mad." And he went on, "You, you blah blah blah." So I turned around to him and said, "You know what? They should have left you to die in the tank." You, you burn bastard, you know what I mean? So that get him out. So something happened then. Doctor come down to the cell. I was on no medication whatsoever. They give me a tot of clear stuff. and no idea what it was. And you know what? I was like, I had no idea what was going on. I was standing in the middle of a punishment cell with a towel ripped in half round my neck because I thought people were coming in to kill me. There was vents in in the bottom of the cell. I was down at the vent, imagine family with outside the vent speaking to me. When they let me out, I don't know how long I was in that pad for, uh, they let me out, 
no idea what was going on. I was going up, can I have this? Going back, don't want to. Didn't have a clue. I thought, if I didn't get out of that jail, I was going to get killed. Because one of the people that uh, interfered with prosecution witnesses in strange ways was there. He was one of the two whose name was said to me, you've got to go guilty, get him off, otherwise you're getting killed. Um, since then, I just carried on fighting for me, for me, innocence. It's not been easy. You know what I mean? And when you know you haven't done it, I've not, uh, I've not behaved myself, but what, what, what would people ex expect in that kind of can we, go, can we go back, Ray? Yes. So when you got sentenced then, was there a trial? Yeah, there was a trial. The trial how, how was the trial? How did all that feel for going through it? Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest with you. When I got the actual sentence, I had to hold on to the bars. You know, when your body shakes, my body was shaking on the out. I couldn't control my body. I was, I think I was actually in shock. I was like, that older on for dear life. And then me... Family come down to try and speak to me. I couldn't speak. You know, I was just uh, Had you held out hope of being found innocent? I've had hope, yeah. I've had some high-profile people. At the people. trial? At the trial. I yes, mean. I was open that I would get that chance to turn around and say, look, this is a load of nonsense. But without that pressure put on me to say, look, you need to turn around and say, get me off if you don't. You, you, you're going to be killed. So was the sentencing hearing separate from the trial? It was straight after the trial. It yeah. was straight after? Yeah, as soon as he got found guilty, I think I think that probably the same day or the next day, went up, he was given a 12-year tariff. I was given a judge's recommendation of 15. So as you see, I actually doubled it. So where did you go after you got sentenced? I went straight to, we went straight back to Risley over, overnight, then went to Walton the next day. He he was in in Patches, which is the Ben banana suit, which is blue and yellow. I I was put down a block, he was put up on the H, H wing. And then from then uh, a couple of months later after we been to court again, they shipped me out to Manchester. What was that like? Racist. Staff were racist, or the inmates? Staff were racist. I mean, it, it was known for being racist, wore peak hats, handed out National Front literature, wore gollywog bags, I mean badges, and used to talk to you like you were dead. But unless you was a face or known heavy, which these two people were, they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, I used to watch it as a kid. Uh, people coming in who were notorious, had a known rep. The schools wouldn't say nothing to them. They could do whatever they wanted. People like me were just like, cannon fodder for the schools to just treat whatever way they wanted. What year was that, Ray? 82. Was it still slopping out and stuff then? Yeah, slopping out was going on for years. I mean, I'm trying to think. Where, I can't remember the first place I actually went to where it actually stopped. I mean, 
Scrubs when I went there were slopping out, Long Larton in the 80s were slopping out, Lewis was slopping out, Dartmoor was slopping out. Garth used to have its own toilet in the sink, sink but that was about 91 till 93. So if we go through these prisons more slowly then, you're in Manchester, he said first. Yeah, yeah. And did you have a cellmate or did you have your own cell? Uh, for the first five days, I was actually chewed up with someone and uh, and then everything happened where I was, I was abused. In the prison? I was racially abused by staff, yeah, and then I was... And did you try and resist that? Yeah, well, I actually responded back and uh, that's when I was sitting down the block and uh, giving a... Giving a few digs and then I got punishment for that I got punishment for an illegal note they found which was going to my cousin so so what is the punishment getting sent to the hole no it's just a block it's like a cell with a kind of plinth built in it's not a bed and the mattress just goes on there and I'd use a stump in the, in the corner like a stool you know what I mean but on a ledge coming out where you probably used to sit for your food but what also happened there at the same time there was all kinds of protests going on in the jail three people died in their pad fire so they were all out on on the yard one day in Manchester and they were told if you don't go out we'll do you in certain people who had that reputation notoriety and uh, when when they come back in the night three people banged up set fire to the cell someone then set fire to a, to a cell in the hospital wing. Someone else tried to set fire. I'm in the block now on punishment. So I thought, well, I think I'll have a join in like an idiot. I smashed the furniture up in the cell, table and chair, turned the bed round. I couldn't barricade up in, in Manchester because the cells were too big. So I turned the bed round like that, facing the door. So I just lit the uh, pad. So I did try to get in with a miniature fire hose like that. And... Uh, when they did manage to get in, they're not interested in putting a fire off. They're trying to suffocate me with the fire ex- extinguisher. They've got me up against the wall like that. The hose right in my face and squirting it right in my face. They weren't in there trusted in. <laughs> and then I got put in a special cell. Uh, a doctor come in from outside, didn't even check me. He just stood in the doorway, just looked at me, shut the door. Fire department come in. They just stood in the doorway, looked at me like that and walked away. So the next morning, they put me in a strip suit, took me in front of the governor, and that's where he actually went mad. And when he started racially abusing me, saying to me, he's going to get me sectioned off. He's going to make sure I actually do 30 years. So after that, I think it took a couple of months, and then I was moved out to... Strangeways, I mean, sorry, scrubs. When you heard people had died in the fire, how did that make you feel? Oh, sad. I mean, any, anybody that dies in in jail, you know what? It's horrible. I've seen people cut themselves up. I've seen people pour boiling hot water over over their heads. I've seen people go in cells to kill people with shanks. I've seen people go up onto the top landing and dive head first down down the stairs to actually killed themselves. I've been on landings where people have hung themselves. It's not nice. So you got moved to Scrubs. So for a scouser to go to London, what was that? There's only two jails in the country then, that two lifers, Wakefield and Scrubs. So he ended up going to, I think, Hull first. So they took me, moved me up there. 
See, the Home Office would dictate where you went at the time, not us. So Home Office went scrubs. So I was up there from 82 till 86. Well, that's London, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what was that like as a scouser in a London prison? You know what? It, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I think I was seen as someone, according to them, who had anger issues. You know what I mean? He said, where does this man's hatred come from? Probably because I shouldn't have been in jail in the in the first place. It's something that I hadn't done. So that used to probably uh, reciprocate itself in my approach to uh, them. Uh, I've done talks in Scrubs. It's really old, isn't it? It is It is old. I mean, I was on, I mean, the long term, which was the life wing D-wing at the time. And uh, used to hold about 230, something like that. There was cates on the twos and threes, so it was mixed. Uh, I used to mix with a couple of people from Brixton. Uh, I had uh, a couple of aunties that lived in London at the time. I didn't know, but I also had a cousin that lived around the corner at the time in West London. So, uh, I think I had a, I mean, one of my brothers come up and see me once he's like oh yeah it's a holiday camp I said it's not a holiday camp if you ever go in you'll find out yourself so I was there for about four years so when you first arrived then what was it like settling in did you get a cellmate right away no everyone had their own cells that's good Scrubs, which, uh, did you prefer that yeah yeah and was there any brutality that you witnessed yeah, there's, there's fights there, you know what I mean? Seeing some people do, do some stupid things. I mean, one kid, they told, don't put him back on the wing because I think he was he was, he was was on something that he shouldn't have been on. He come on the wing one day, had an argument with a big, big uh, colour fella and stabbed him in the neck with a glass. Only because the kid was fit, he managed to get down to the twos before he collapsed and someone managed to get hold of his windpipe and try and keep hold of it, you know, to stop the blood from uh, flowing. He survived. And I was like, that, well. Then some other kid, who was notorious, and he was told, do not put him on the wing. Within a couple of weeks of being on the wing, he took someone hostage. And, like, where we were, he was on that side, and then you got a big green canopy over over the door so they could go in and say com, communicate with this kid to try and get the kid out. I seen the kid go up on the fours and dive head first down the concrete stairs to actually kill himself. He badly in, injured himself. Unlike uh, the uh, perversion they were, they put him back on the, the same wing months later. So you can imagine what that's, that's done to this person's head. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, and how it, it was just mad. I mean, the block was notorious, which you probably, I don't know if you've heard about Scrubs block. I mean, a few years ago, there was a big uh, media thing about the beatings down there. Yeah, they were beating people up down, down the block in Scrubs. But then certain people used to come, depending who they were. They used to turn out to the staff said, you touch anyone while we're there, as soon as you open the door, we're there. Uh, getting it on. So, you know what I mean? But I just didn't like it because there was a ride there in 83 Scrubs. And, uh, Over what? I think it was probably Con 
conditions at the time because you you still had so many people out on the association into the uh, association which was through the exercise yard and the rest used to be banged up. You know what I mean? So you got nothing. So in the end there was a riot. Only about 10 people got involved. They actually knew it, it was going to happen. So they surrounded the the jail with uh, riot police. It kicked off. And uh, they managed to get ev- everyone behind the door. But I have seen it in my files that I said, oh, we managed to get him behind the door uh, before he actually got involved in, in it. You know what I mean? And then you could... Eh, all kinds going on. I mean, I think we're trying to throw inmates over the landings. When they opened up later on in the day, they were all like bragging. I mean, they had blood all over 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 their uniforms, like boasting like it was a badge of honour. And them them kids got uh, hammered. You know what I mean? But uh, it wasn't the first one that uh, happened. Dartmoor, I was in Dartmoor. And uh, one of the wings went off. But I was swagged down the block, which is me ghosted to the block with the eight others off different wings. Uh, this was after Strangeways went up. About ten prisons went up straight after in like, then, you know, and uh, it come over the radio when it kicked off. We've already got the ring leaders in the block. I thought, are you having a laugh? So it means someone else went on a, on a Food protests, no food, nowhere water. So after five days, you start hallucinating uh, if you jump up quick. So they took us both in into the healthcare, put us in strip cells. And the kid who was up on the roof was from the pool. Uh, and uh, when he come down, they put him in the healthcare, said to him, go and speak to them too, get them to eat or drink. So he's come to the door, he's speaking to me, he said, Ray, don't kill yourself for these. As soon as I took something to eat, this is how cold they are, Carlos, they burst into the cell and said, your dad's dead, laughing their heads off and ran out and slammed the door. And that's the kind of people you're actually dealing with. I mean, I got released from Kenneth in 2016 and now the governor there knew me from years ago in Garth. He said, I remember you, you were a little pain in the backside. We had to wrap you up several times. He said, but my objective is to get you out. And there's certain staff there that have been in Garth and they're like that to him. What's he doing here? Get him out of this jail. He's like that. He's changed. He isn't the same person. So I have to give some some their due. He actually worked to, to get me out. I mean, there was two mad football screws in Scrubs. One supported Newcastle, the other supported Sunderland. So we used to have banter. And it's like, one of them was transferring to go back to the North East. And he didn't have to, but he come come in the day he was he was going. That night, opened my door, and he's there with it. I didn't know it was his wife. He went, yeah, give me a... Everton calendar and an Everton programme. I said, thank you. And I went, who's that? He said, I think he said it's my wife. I said, oh, I thought it was your little floozy. <laughs> no, me just having a laugh. But it shows you that some are, have got a, a heart, but you've got a hardcore element that don't want prisoners to have nothing. 
You just want them to have a hard time. And them that do try and help you, that they are berated by the hardcore that don't want you, want you to have nothing. That's why COVID played right into their hands. It shut the jails down. They got complete control back over the jails. So I don't know what actually what's going on now. I mean, if they're still back to the way they used to be pre-COVID. But I presume they're, they're not because there's a lot of bang up in a lot of jails. If they want people to actually live a border law-abiding life when they get out, provide them with the opportunities. We spoke to a governor years and years ago, uh, just on a general chit-chat, and he said, rehabilitation comes from within yourself. If you want it, then you know, they don't provide you with the opportunity. You know what I mean? Cat A's, cat B's, because you, you know what? It's They are dangerous places to be in. And I mean, your dispersal system. I was glad I got out of it when I did because the Muslims started to come in and take over. Muslim prisoners started getting heavy sentences for what happened, what they were doing in this country. They were getting transferred up to the northeast to Franklin and they were getting set up to be beaten up. So they started fighting back. And the next minute, you just got this huge mass of Muslims in certain jails you're in. If you can cook, you can't cook bacon in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if you attack a Muslim, they're, they're all uh, attacking you. It's mad. The system's just mental. How long are you in the scrubs for? Four years. And why did you get moved? Uh, it was pro after a certain time. In in the old days, what used to happen is they used to give you a six-month review. So you go on a board, you'd have the governor, probation, chaplain, psychology, your work, education, and they used to sit all around and give their little spiel. Um, I used to have this chaplain who I didn't like because I thought he was after uh, some of the youngsters in there. And... Uh, he used to say to me, what's up with this man? You know what I mean? Because I used to rant and rave. I didn't take part in nothing. I haven't done nothing. So I wouldn't take part in no coursework or nothing. And it's like, most of the time I was, uh, I think after I got jumped on by the staff in Strangeways, it changed my perception of, of them. So I just... Didn't co-operate, okay. I used to go to work because I had to get money to, to pay for, for my stamps and that. And, uh, uh, I used to just write out to everyone you could think of, MPs, the House of Lords, media, radio, ev- anybody you could think of, I'd write to just to see what they could do on on their media case. And uh, Scrubs wasn't bad, you know what I mean? I used to have it with a couple of people from Brixton and they... They uh, were uh, sound, he used to say. He used to smoke the weed. <laughs> Regular, he used to be huge. Yeah, we used to have it, but don't get me wrong, there was, uh, there was that different many uh, factions there that you just had to be careful. No Did you ever mean. get threatened in there? Uh, no, I don't think I, I actually did, no. In uh, Scrubs, no. What was the next prison you went to? Long Latin. Was that? Worcestershire. What was it like settling in there? You know what? It was, I think, one of the easiest places I've been to because of the way it was run. I mean, I I went there 
1986, I was on Sea Wing, and uh, there's a few scousers on there, scousers on other wings, but some of them were in confrontation with each other for whatever reason, and uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, I started off, I got a job on the operator, so worked on there, then I ended up in the uh, in a shop where, you know what, the amount of knives that were getting made and still get made in that shop and come out is actually unreal. Honest, I was like, went in the shop, I worked in the display section for, for the bit, so I went back outside. But it was easy. Never been in a place like it. Uh, Christmas, people don't believe it, but Christmas, people used to put a curtain on the end of the spare. Now there was three landings, the ground floor, middle floor, and top floor. So there's only about... 30-odd cells on each floor, 32, something like that. Cat Hayes used to be on the middle floor, both sections. Uh, and you could party Christmas, <laughs> order whatever you wanted from the, from the canteen and from outside, food-wise. You used to go in a big TV room. Screws wouldn't go in there. There's a little room off it where we used to watch the sport. They didn't go in there. There's a little kind of games room here. They used to sit outside in the, in the hallway facing the recess. So they didn't go in. So it was easy chairs, like armchairs, soft chairs. People used to have shanks in in the chairs. And if people were were actually going to get attacked and people knew about it, someone would sit, block the door, and do whatever they were doing. Seeing people get stabbed in the tea rooms, seeing people get boiling hot water with sugar poured on them, Ribena boiled up, poured on them. Is that to do with drug debts and things? No, it was all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, some people uh, could be drugs. Some people just down to their attitudes and confrontation with other people on the, on the wing. What was the most shocking thing you saw? <sighs> I think the most shocking thing I've ever saw. Uh, I'll probably be sitting there and watching someone get <sighs> boiling up, right being pulled straight over their head. And then you're hearing a fucking scream. I mean, I've seen people getting stabbed, people in the canteen queues, because long like that, in the, back in the 80s, you all used to go to a canteen, which, which used to be uh, between E-Wing and F-Wing, F all queue up. So if people owe people money off other wings and they didn't pay it, well, there was areas you could am- ambush people. Which used to happen, people used to get hit over the head, PP9s in the day, bed legs, which you could take off the bed, snooker balls, and that used to be rife. And then they actually changed it in the 90s, they shut the field down because of what happened at Gartry. But it could have happened that long Latin, because just before they uh, escaped from Gartry, the helicopter escaped, helicopter come in to land. At Long Larton, it was an army helicopter. They've jumped out, the screws didn't know what was going on. They've jumped back in and just flew back over the wall. A couple of weeks later, Gartry happened. So they then stopped the big field for a while, put cages up and the wires across. So then lost the AstroTurf. Used to play football of a Saturday on the AstroTurf. I used to jog around the field when I was. Uh, I used to train, used to do several miles, and then I started jogging for doing some runs for charity. 
whilst I was in, which doesn't go noticed outside. A lot of people do a lot of stuff inside as well for charity. You know, I see, I've done runs in Wormwood Scrubs. I've done a couple in Long Larton. Uh, I should have done one in not in Nottingham, but got moved before I, I could do it. Couple in uh, Grandin, which was a therapy place. I did a, I think we did a was it a thousand or a ten thousand sit up challenge for a charity, four of us. Uh, when I was in the special unit in uh, Durham, I wasn't allowed to communicate with the people who come to interviews about my case, but I could talk about any anything else. I did a couple of runs up there as a welfare charity. So know. going back to Long Latin, then does it sa- it sounds to me like. You know, in the beginning you were angry and rebelling, but you've adapted more and accepted it more by the time you were at Long Latin. Is that correct? No, I no? wouldn't say so, no, because I, uh, I was involved in sabotage. What does that uh, mean? Uh, I used to, I, laundry, if you put a mask bar in the calendar, which used to do the sheets, they'd have to shut the laundry down and it cost them about 10 grand to repair the calendar so they couldn't do no bedding. Uh, bogs in the workshops. If you went in a workshop and got a bad leg or something and put it inside the toilet and smashed the toilet, the insides would break and it would block the bogs. So they'd have to uh, shut the workshops down. Uh, tea rooms burned down in certain jails. And were you aware that you were going to be doing 30 plus at this point or was that? Because remember that you said earlier on the warden said, I'm going to make sure you do 30. Did you think that was not going to happen? Uh, No, I didn't think I'd I'd, I'd do 30. No, I thought, well, okay, you you got me for 15, which you say is the starting point before you can be, go up for a review. So I would have probably be 12 years, probably would have had a review and then had the other one on 15. But no, because as far as they were concerned, you're fighting the, the, the case. You're not ex- accepting any uh, re- responsibility. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade mentor. The Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past, present and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive In Conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. You didn't get it now. It was only on the last review... Uh, 
which was attended by Bruce Kent and uh, a member of Jangba, that they agreed we're not taking, uh, we're not looking at the case because we know your stance. All we're concerned about is whether you could uh, adapt in society and whether you could be handled in in society. So I was surprised when he actually said, okay, yeah. Well, I think by then I was working out, uh, I started working out in the charity shop let, let, let's let's just go back to the to the prisons first. Yeah. You're going through. What was it after Long Larting? I went from Long Larting to Wormwood Scrubs just to stay a week on route. If you used to get transferred in them days, you'd go to like Onley, which used to be the transit point on a certain day, and in the north, I think in the southeast, it used to be uh, or Chelmsford, or it used to be. Uh, somewhere in Yorkshire uh, that used to do them on different days. So I stopped o- o- overnight in a, a week in Scrubs and then I went to Lewis in '88. Uh, and what was arriving at Lewis like? Lewis was all right, it was just one wing, long, long-term wing, and a little spare off for the long-term, long-termers. I, I, I knew quite a few people there that had been in scrubs, so it, it was uh, okay. Uh, I was too busy making hoots to even <laughs> think about anything else. <laughs> oh, man. And was there any scousers there? Uh, I'm trying to think. Was there any scousers there? I can't, you know what, to be honest. I can't recall. You said previously at Long Light and the Scousers were beefing. Did that mean you had to take sides or were you just friends no, with everybody? No, no, no. On the wing that I was on, I was all right. There's some people there that actually knew who I was. They didn't speak to me and I actually didn't speak to them. Uh, but a couple of people there had beefed from, I think, probably outside because of what had gone on between certain people. Oh, no, I wasn't a party to that, no. So what was your daily routine at Lewis? Uh, at first, uh, I think I had a job on on the wing until I got a, a job in the kitchen. You know, the kitchen job wasn't bad. Uh, I liked it. I learned, learned a few things, you know what I mean? How where to cook, you know what I mean? Which is help me whilst I'm, uh, while I'm being out. Were you serving food as well? Uh, yes, there used to be a hot plate on the small little section where for the for that wing. That looks stressful because like you got people trying to get extra and other people get mad if you give them extra. Oh yeah, I think it can be, but you know what? You just serve serve the food, you know what I mean? And you got access to extra food yourself. Of course. <laughs> well it wasn't just access to uh, extra food. I think most person kitchens, whether people will admit it or not, you could cook food yourself and then I mean, my last year, I used to be able to cook food and take it back to wing. So I used to share my food, whoever I was in there with, or a couple of other people that knew who I was and family. So, Were there any dangerous situations at Lewis? Uh, no, the only time I think I came into a confrontation was uh, they actually came in to do me and my mate, you know, a, a spin. And I had a box of volumetric control of Hooch in my cell. He had a box in this cell. We had Hooch hidden all over the wing. So I was throwing canisters out the 
window onto the kitchen roof, so before they came on top. So it came on top for that, and then I don't think long after that I was I was ghosted. What to? Back to Scrubs. So you made some Brixton in the. Uh, no, by the time I went back there, eighteen eighty nine, it had changed. So how many years had you done by that point? Eighty nine, uh, probably eight. Eight. Yeah. And how long are you in Scrubs again for this time? Only for a couple of months, and then I got uh, allocated to uh, Dartmoor. <laughs> what was that like? <sighs> the one where death. the mist comes in. Yeah. And it fills yeah. the cells. Yeah, your cells are actually damp. You have to go and get into your bed wearing your clothes because your bed feels like it's be it's being wet. That's how bad it is. The condensation is coming off the walls. Anyone that drives there, when you're driving on the moors, it might be a nice day, you know, like today. Suddenly, mist will just come out of nowhere. You can't see nothing next minute. This building appears out, out of the mist and engraved in the gates, abandon ye all hope who enter, something like that. So, uh, Dartmoor was a, it was a horrible gaff run by a hardcore ex-screws who must have been army. Because when I first went there, I actually got a job in the kitchen. And then I got sacked for something that happened in the kitchen between me and staff. And uh, What happened? Uh, staff found that much hooch in a metal can, which was used for the tea, in the kitchen area. Decided it was me and someone else. So, well, you're getting sacked. So I said, right, is that right? So I picked up a paddle. I used to have big coppers, which used to boil the water for the tea or could be your rice pudding or whatever. And I picked it up and just walked in the office and started smashing the office up. All the screws come running in and all the inmates then went into the butchers and picked up all the tools. said, you put your hands on them, use it, getting it. So they walked me to the block. The next day I was gone for 28 days to uh, under a, 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 a ten. 74, which used to be classed as a 28-day lie-down to cool you off and to give the staff 28 days break. So I ended up going to Walton for 28 days. So I didn't mind. I got a chance of seeing my dad and a couple of uh, visits. So I went back and uh, went back to uh, Dartmoor. I stayed there for a while. Then I had to go to Parkhurst and get me hand and arm fixed. So I was in the hospital wing in Parkhurst for a couple of weeks get me after I had my arm and leg so fixed. So Parkhurst, is that a bit like Broadmoor? Is that, no, Parkhurst oh. used to be high risk, high, high, risk. high secure, cate. Yeah. But uh, I was in the healthcare. Uh, I was there for three weeks. What's it like being in healthcare? It wasn't too bad at the time. Parkhurst, you know what I mean? I mean... The kid who was in charge of the wing was, uh, I think, he was doing life. As I said, I was only there for a while. I was getting the hand fixed because I damaged the hand playing football in the gym and getting me knee fixed, which at the time they thought it was the cartilage, but it wasn't the cartilage because whatever they did, they took a bit of a tear out of the cartilage, made me uh, wear the caliper, but the leg was still col collapsing. Mm. Well, like, like a... Bang going off. I could be walking down the, just like this, now normal. The next minute, I'm on, on in my back. The leg used to go, to go bang. It took until 93, I think. I went from... I was in Garth. I went to the Preston Royal. They opened it up. 
and then went back to Garth, got me from Garth to Gartree, and went from Gartree to Leicester Royal, and they did the reconstruction of the cruciate ligament, you know, to fix it. Uh, and then they said to me, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. After they fixed it, I was jogging still. I couldn't play football proper. I used to go and go, but I, I used to run. And what was the origin of the injury? Uh, that was done playing football. This was done playing football. I was in the goal in the gym five side and someone hit the ball that hard that I bent my hand right back. And there's a little bone in, in your hand, which is called the uh, scaffold bone, which affects the movement. So when that happened, I went to, uh, I was in the, Lewis, I was open to do the brick laying course. I couldn't hold a brick in my hand because of that. So it took a couple of years to actually get it fixed. So now, but probably with the cold, it actually plays up now. So by the time we get to 1990, where were you? 1990, I was in Dartmoor. Back in Dartmoor. Still in Dartmoor, yes. And what was the atmosphere like in there? Uh, it was it was mixed. I mean, when I was working in, in, in the kitchen, it, it wasn't bad. Then when I got sacked off the kitchen, I had to go over to the main, one of the wings, so I went, went up onto C wing. So, yeah, C and D, you go through a connecting door, like, say that that's the door there, you go through that door and you're next door. So you had A wing and B wing. B wing wasn't open then at the time. So you had A wing, C wing, D wing. Then you right, went right across to the other side of the jail, you had E wing, which is then that worked in the laundry and kitchen. They were like sp uh, special people, they were treated differently. Then you had uh, the wing next door to them was half wing was for sex offenders. No, and then you had the big exercise yard, then you had the gym. And uh, when I went over straight on to the wing, I was targeted by staff. As soon as I walked on, this old school said, you don't know, you do as you're told. And I just looked at him and said, shut up, you fucking old tablet. And then I'm saying, I'll be able way I won. Uh, things were all right. There was a couple of us there, Scousers, we were on on the same spare. We had a big sign post made. We called it Brookside. <laughs> Brookside. Brookside. There was about eight of us all in a, in a row. <laughs> Scousers, it was called Brookside. And uh, it was fun. <laughs> okay. I, again, huge. You know what I mean? People used to work out on the, the moors. And like, used to bring in mushrooms, whatever they used to do with them, magic mushrooms, yeah. Had a, had a couple of trips, you know what I mean? But it, it was fun. So you said the sex offenders got their own wing. Did, you know, in America, there's this thing called convict justice where they try and get them. Did you see any examples of that? No. Uh, I think the first time I actually seen anything was probably Grendon, which is therapy. So... <clears throat> Then we were more serious for sex offenders dead on the wing on their own, but you've got them on on the other, other wings. So you're mixing on the wing then and you're listening to people talk, like psychodrama, uh, art therapy. So they go on art and draw something and it might evoke feelings. So they come into the main wing after they've done it and talk about it. Or group therapy, they used to act out stuff, you know, like whatever it was that was their issues, people. So 
I was there. I mean, I only got allowed to stay there because of Bruce Kent and uh, um, two people in the House of Lords. They met with the governor and said, give him a, a, a chance. Because at first they said, nah, we're not having him. After the three months initial uh, reception, they went, no. When was that? Uh, I went to Grand in 2004. So what about the rest of the 90s then? Well, the you must 90s, have been confronted with the fact that your sentence was getting longer by then. Yeah, 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 but I was still fighting the case, so my attitude hadn't changed. I was in Garth, 91 to, to 93. Uh, I was down in Nottingham, 93. I went to Gartry after that. Uh, we had Dave Gunn on from Nottingham. Did you bump into the Gunn brothers? No, not, not my time there. Uh, Gartry after that, I think I went from Gartry up to Franklin. And I went from Franklin to Army on the 28 day 74, which is a lie down, back to Franklin. Then I went back to Long Larton. Uh, then they put me out up to uh, Blakenhurst. Then from Blakenhurst back to Long Larton. And I ended up in Whitemore. Uh, and then from Whitemore, I went back to, uh, was it Long Larton? Uh, then ended up going to Belmars for, for a court case for, for a couple of people, which I put my hands up to something else I hadn't done to, to, to get people off. Throughout all these movements, what were your biggest challenges or threats? Or uh, It wasn't threats, it was the fact that when they constantly move, move you, it's to stop you from communicating. So you don't get your property, you don't get your paperwork. And so getting all your stuff is murder. So that's one of the things they do. Well, you've caused us this, we're going to uh, cause you. Move from block to block to block. That way you can't uh, form any friendships. You can't do this, you can't do that because you haven't got nothing, no, no waxy stuff. They call it diesel therapy in America. They just keep moving you so you can't settle. Yeah, yeah. Well, it used to be what known as the ghost train, block to block. And then they used to have sp uh, sp special units o over here. I can't remember what they were called before they changed them. In 98, they created units, whole unit, Woodhill unit. And basically, the idea was, was you're going to take people who were the most destructive and the most violent and put them in, into this setting so they wouldn't have any influence in the mainstream and it was also to stop people from being moved from block to block so this was an attempt to try and integrate people back onto normal location by trying to get them to conform but it didn't work out like that because they lied to people in whole with already in whole in the unit in whole before they changed it from a it become a uh, CSC, Close Supervision Centre. It was called a CRC before that. So I think they got the people in Hull to sign paperwork to agree to whatever. So when Wood Hill opened, it was a jail within a jail. You didn't touch the main re reception. You come into the jail, you come through a gate, and I've never been in a jail like a concrete sheep. There was four concrete sheep outside this building, which was uh, built behind sheets of iron, corrugated iron. It had 74 cameras on it, inside and outside. Every yard was cameraed up. Every 
door wasn't a normal door. You had to press a button and an infrared light would come up and someone would say yes and it would show who it was and then the, the door would open. So it was like you go into reception, they go through you, then they put you on B-ring first and then if you didn't sign a compact, they put you down on A-ring where you wouldn't get nothing, you wouldn't even have a pen or anything to even write. What does the compact mean? It was a compact on what they expected of you. No, I mean, like, mine was like, uh, the original compact was violence towards staff and inmates, use of the complaint system, the abuse of the complaint system, because in some prisons, I put that many in that they'd go mad. And sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd do it for the bet. Someone would say, like, buy the chocolate, you don't put so many in. I said, yeah, what's me? So if I didn't get a response within 24 hours, I'd put them all back in, and they used to go mental. Just uh, little man. I mean, quite a few times. I mean, they didn't like me, I'll be honest with you, because in a few jails, they tried to actually set me up to be killed. What? Yes, in a, in a couple of jails. I went down to a high, high down one year, and uh, I didn't know anybody on the wing I was on, but someone else on the other wing did know me. So there was a female working there. I used to take the piss out of her. I said, what are you doing working for these? Your people were probably like mine. Slaves back in the day, hundreds of years ago, and you're working for these. Are you mad? Next minute, someone gets called down to a gate and said, he's in for killing a baby. Next minute, me pack gets dressed. I ended up taking them to the county court, winning a, a, a court case in the county court to get paid for me, property being destroyed. What um, year was that? Uh, I think it was about probably 94, 95, something like that. So you said to, to be on the ghost train then, they've got to classify you as incorrigible. Is that because of staff assaults and Well, you fights? know what, where they're saying staff assaults, that doesn't make, make sense because I think I had a running with staff in... Strange ways. I'd one, I think, running in Walton in 81 where they tried to take the mattress out of the cell when I wasn't even on punishment. Uh, and I never had an altercation then after that for years and years. Probably that more when we had the thing over in the kitchen. Uh, so, and then I think Nottingham, I had to pull a, a teacher and tell the teacher, Stop, don't be talking to him like that. So he isn't dead. Know what I mean? Say, so you're only a teacher, shut up. Know what I mean? Don't be telling him he can't do this and he can't do that. You haven't got nowhere power. Jog on. No, I actually wasn't liked for that. Know what I mean? But even on the special unit, they tried to set me up to be killed. I mean, you knew if something was going on because the atmosphere would change. So one day, they put the two groups out with each other, which they don't normally do. So when you say two groups, what do you mean? Well, there used to be three of us on the group out. I was on, there was four on another group and there was so many on the group four. So you could only mix with them. You'd exercise with them. You'd come out on an association with them. So this day, uh, we're all out. And I, I've gone to get a shower. There's a kid from my other group in the shower. And he said to me, oh, this, the screws have said you're a blah, a blah, blah, blah. So I had to def deflect it and said, don't, don't believe everything you hear from screws 
know what I mean? So qu- quite a few times he'd actually uh, set him up. Isn't there a thing where, like, you can say, where's the paperwork? Well, yeah, you could do, but if, if they're going to... wrong with it, don't they, a lot, yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. Pe- People yeah. do. Some people do. Some people believe everything they're actually told by staff and will go and uh, do whatever for staff. Earlier on, did you say you, you had ended up with another court case in the 90s? I did, yes. And what was that? Uh, I was in Franklin and somebody got hurt in uh, Franklin and uh, me and uh, someone else got charged with it. Uh, went to court, they got found not guilty and I got found guilty. I'm thinking, how's that? I said, how can you find me guilty? The person who, who got injured said, I didn't hurt him. He said, I had an old of him. I said, I didn't have an old of you at all. He said, someone else cut him and it, it wasn't me. Was that like history repeating itself for you then? Uh, yeah, it was because uh, the judge turned around and said, uh, I want the parole board to uh, take notice of this. So when I started going up for reviews, it's, it was getting mentioned. So I thought, it's the other day. And whilst, uh, okay, whilst I was in the Cate system, the high security state, you had the chance of getting, getting out because I wasn't Cate. But as soon as I got put into the CSE system, Treats like I was a cate. I wasn't a cate. Everyone, cate van. When you used to go to the doctors, you used to put you in a uh, clean cell, which no one was in, strip you, put you in a monkey suit, cuff you, march you down to the healthcare, sick staff with the dog. Uh, and it was just mental. Um, uh, I had a they moved me out one one week because a member of the staff didn't like the fact uh, what happened in one of the units between me and the staff. And uh, he actually put her on me. He opened the door one morning as supposed to be getting naps. He said, do you want some? I went, wow. So when he opened the door, I didn't look out the door. If I had looked out the door, there was staff standing with their backs right up against the wall. So it went off between him and me. They've come in then. So... I've got people trying to twist me arms and legs and he's trying to punch me in, in, the, in the face. So every time he's trying to punch me, I'm turning my face one way. Then he's trying to throw it the other way, I'm turning my face. So uh, I got moved to full Sutton Block then because they created cells in, in the high security estate for prisoners from the CSE who they couldn't control and put them on lie down. So I'm in the block in full Sutton and my brief come down from... London, they wouldn't let him have a normal visit because of what they said. It should have been six-man unlock. It wasn't six-man unlock. I'm in the cell. I had to come out backwards with my hands on my head like that, stand up against this wall, spread eagled. They said to me, put me in cuffs. If I was going for the shower, I'd be cuffed. If I was going to use the phone, cuffed. If I was going on exercise, 12 members of staff, cuffed, put out, take the cuffs off. I couldn't move from that standing like that until they left the yard. Visits, and shoot me onto the high-risk cate visits, cuffed, bring the cate van down to full Sutton block, put me on the van with six staff and a dog, and then take me into the high-risk visiting room. I'd still have the cuffs dangling, people coming in, and they'd be in the room with you. See, you couldn't talk, shouldn't have even been there. 
No, I mean, in the end, the CP, uh, CPS said no, not uh, not charging it either of me or the, the, the uh, screw. What was the turn of the millennium like in prison? 2000. So you've done almost 20 years by then. Well, things had changed in 1995 because they brought in uh, volumetric control, drug testing, and uh, basically they were telling you to comply. Otherwise, your basic regime, you have basic standard and enhanced. <laughs> Within a couple of weeks of that bringing in, I spent, I think, more time on basic than nothing else for years. Uh, I think after 10 years, the on basic and the standard, I think they decided to give me the enhanced status. I got it one day and lost it the next day. Oh. How'd you lose it? Uh, there was an in, incident in, in Weimar where I think the electric and the water wasn't on, so people weren't happy. So everyone stayed out. And me thought, right, I know how this is going to end. So I got a snooker ball, put it in the sock. I thought, if they're going to attack us, I'm going to have to defend myself. So they decided, like, you've lost your job on a wing, you're back on the basic. So for periods like New Year's Eve, Christmas, is that a day that's particularly depressing in prison? It probably is for people, but you know what? Uh, Not being around family, I mean, I, I had my Christmases most of mine in care. So, and I never spent Christmas with my own family until I come home. I had one uh, with me sister, one of me, two of me brothers, and me mother and her third husband. But that was before Christmas. But I've had my Christmas with me dad's side. I've spent it while I've been out. I've had a couple of Christmases with them. The last uh, couple of Christmas have been great. My wife, her uh, kids, you know what I mean? So, so you weren't getting many visits in the prison system? No, uh, I didn't have many. I mean, my brother come up a couple of times. Then we had a row because he thought it was like holiday camp. I said, oh, there's the door, jog on. Uh, and then when I won compo for that, I had a better case for that. But the brief messed it up. So <laughs> uh, I got a couple of aunties coming up when I was in, in Garth. My sister come up when I was in Walton a few times with the other auntie. My mate, who said he was coming today, but hasn't turned up, he'd come up and see me a few times. And then when other people started getting in, involved in the case, Bruce used to come and see me wherever I, I was. He fought me corner. He'd hold public meetings in Liverpool and voice about the case all over. I had a couple of visits from Lord, a Lord, member of the House of Lords when I was in Grandin. He used to write to me, regular, uh, and then as I gradually come down the line to Catsy, one of my other brothers started coming up with a couple of me cousins. Maybe they thought, oh, it's getting nearer the time he's getting now. And they wanted to see which way I'd go, you know what I mean, with people who were involved in shit. But I think my mum actually told them, he'll he'll just do his own thing. You won't be able to wear get him to do this and that, that and that. He'll just, uh, whatever way he's, he's going to go. How did prison culture change from the 80s and 90s to the 2000s? Is that when drug culture really got a stronghold? No, I think uh, it was the spice. Spice. <sighs> Absolutely. I mean, most prisons, they'll uh, agree 
there's been a problem for years. There's been a, a brown problem. Uh, the brown didn't help because when they brought in the actually drug testing, people then changed suddenly because the stay can stay in your body for up to six weeks if you're a constant smoker. If you're a passive smoker, it might stay in your body for a week, two weeks. But then people started turning to hard drugs. And then the jails just went crazy. People were robbing off people. They were taking hits out on people to earn that, to pay. And then, excuse me, I'm not sure when... Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. Spies come in. I think uh, when I first seen it, I thought... Unreal. People who thought they could smoke, thought they could smoke the spice, and it wasn't like that. I think I witnessed someone give someone a yogurt container like that with the lid on a hole in. He took it, comatose, couldn't move his body, but he would scream. We used to go in the cell and go, "Shut up, or you're gonna bring it on fucking top." We used to play cards each night where we were and drink. Uh, distilled, which was uh, people used to make hooch out of whatever, and then they boil it, and you can make it into proper alcohol distilled, and you could get a bottle like you got all your bottle of water. That used to go for a hundred quid for one bottle like that, and your weed started going. Some people used to sell free joints for a hundred and fifty quid. So you could make that. People were coming in into jail just on me man send me money, nothing else. You can make a fortune. And then I've seen other people on, on the spice running at walls, button the walls at first. Some people just comatose being sick and if you didn't pick them up and sit them up straight, they'd probably choke on the, on the, the sick. So spice has played a, a huge impact because it's, Dangerous. Whenever the uh, authorities get wind of what chemicals are in it, all people do then who's ever on it, just change the chemical. I'm, I know a kid said he used to buy the stuff, spray it with chocolate or spray it with something else, only costing 15 quid. They're making a fortune inside. Unreal. So with the, dr- the rise of the drug gangs and drug activity brought mayhem, you said. How did you navigate that? Well, I wasn't party uh, to it, you know what I mean? The the drug gangs. You had gangs who had wars outside, you know, like uh, the Gooch and the Pepper Hill. But I was in one jail where both sides were and there was no asshole. Probably because well, we're in jail now, so that's just the thing. But uh, I think what happened is there was a 
couple of notorious people in in prison in one jail, and uh, they were getting drugs off someone who was classed as a sex offender. So someone else didn't like it. So it kicked off, and then wars started happening between Demla and other people joined in, and then the Muslims and the blacks got involved, the others got involved. So now it's uh, it's just been mental. Were you, just a, were you just an observer of that? You didn't... No, I actually wasn't in the dispersal then. I was in the CSE when it all started going mental. But uh, I was just glad. I mean, I could have been put back in the dispersal, but the governor in charge of the CSE at the time said, no, if we put you back in the dispersal, your behaviour will go backwards. So they put me in Grendon to try and do some therapy on childhood issues and my institutional behaviour. Unfortunately for me, it didn't work out because I was told I could sit in a chair like this, speak my mind, as long as I didn't threaten anybody and get out of the chair, I was okay. So one day, I'm sitting in the chair and... Uh, Scooby-Doo, which uh, nickname for Scooby, is staring at me. I'm like, that. what's this person staring at? So I just turned around and one day said, I didn't get out the chair. I didn't threaten him. I just said to him, who are you looking at? I said, I wouldn't piss on you if you was on fire. So the Scooby left the room, started crying. So next minute, the whole wing had a vote. Or no, the staff have gone in into their little room first, decided, no, the staff member wanted to stay, you're going to have have to go. So I'd, they kept me behind the door for a week and then I, I got moved. And is it true that you have to sign a contract in that place because, like, if a sex offender opens up about their story, you can't yeah. just yeah, beat yeah, up yeah, yeah. It's, you know what, it's like, it gave me an insight into people where I didn't give a damn, you know what I mean? Damn, so... I was then I had to put myself in other people's shoes, listen to what they they had to say, and try and because I've, I'm not I'd never have been, but I don't know why someone's given me some kind of reputation I haven't got. So some people said they used to be said we're scared to uh, 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 approach you. I said what for? So I don't know what had gone on behind closed doors with staff or what staff had said to people so I had to sort of like try to let people in because of what happened as a child I think uh, I used to keep people out as much as possible so I had a barrier and people couldn't get in and I don't think people liked that so I used to be on a group eight of us on a group and he always used to be attacking this kid and I used to, I always used to defend the kid why I did proved in the end I shouldn't have but I went there to try and deal with childhood issues, but I didn't get round to it because I actually spoke my mind. They didn't like it, so I was gone. So to be in that place then where you've got people with such different crimes from what you've been previously been housed with, did that mess with your head a bit? Uh, no, because there was a couple of people there that, that I knew. So at first, they didn't want to put me on the same wing as a good friend of mine he said he'll interfere with your therapy and you'll interfere with this and said no he's his own man he'll do his own thing so in the end because of Bruce Kent and Lord D they actually met with the governor of Grandin and in the end he told him give him a, give him a chance 
So I ended up being given that chance. So I think I've, they were happy with how I was going, you know what I mean? And then the main psychologist left, so someone else was put in charge, so they had the opportunity now because the person who was in charge was on, on my group, was in charge of my little group of eight. So I think she un understood where I was coming from, but there was an hardcore element that didn't want me there because I had murder. Most jails I've been in, me letters from MPs were getting opened up constantly, so they knew what buttons to push. So I was constantly arguing with them, leave my mail alone. Sometimes I used to go in the office and remonstrate with them, you know, like that. And it's like, oh, it's an accident. I said, it's not an accident because you keep doing it. You know what I mean? So in the end, I think they must have got, uh, must have got up, upset because I used to wind one of them up who was in an affair with, with the other female. I used to take the piss. You know what I mean? Because I thought, well, you're taking the piss out of me. You're abusing me, male. You're abusing this. So I'll uh, take the piss out of, out of you. And they didn't like it. They don't mind it if, if they can give it you. But you're not allowed to st stand there and give it back. We interviewed a guy called Dr. Bob who said he'd um, helped people that were convicted of murder. He talked to 500 prisoners plus in this country. Did you ever come across him, Dr. Bob? I don't think I have, no. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to a couple, couple of people. I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't trust staff, never have, you know what I mean? And I still wouldn't trust them if I, if I was in, in there now, you know what I mean? There's just too much going on. Where did you go to the therapeutic prison? I went back to Woodhill, but not the unit, onto the normal wing, and then I went from there to Kingston. And then from Kingston, I went to Stockton. And then I went from Stockton to Wymott. It didn't work in Wymott. I think I went to Walton. Why didn't it work? Uh, because of the sit-out. Uh, so I think I went to Walton. Then I went to Risley. Or I went to Risley first. Got kicked out, out of there. Went to Walton. And Walton sent me back to, I think, Wymott. And then I went from Wymott down to Guy's Marsh. And then I went from Guy's Mars to uh, Kenneth. And when Kenneth was shutting down, he said, we're not moving you, you're staying here, and we're going to get you out from it, yeah. Why are we kicked out of Risley? Uh, altercation with the other Connors. So you must have gone then from being someone who was like a young person to being someone who's so adapted to the system, you're in a position to like mentor, perhaps help young people coming in. Did you find you ever played that role? No. I was. I think it was a role, uh, if they had asked me, I probably would have done it, but I don't think I was their kind of uh, favourite to actually get that. I mean, they would pick and choose who they'd have to go and speak to people like that. You know what I mean? Someone like me, they seen as a, an unruly element, might be someone that might uh, earn a Encourage people to act in the wrong way. So, no. So, uh, how did your ca case progress over the years then? Uh, I think over the years, it went back to the CCRC when it went back the first time. And uh, 
I think we had the psychological report done uh, by an expert. If we had had two done, it probably would have went back to appeal. But because it was only one and they didn't have nothing to back it up, they actually rejected it. So since then, we've gone back a few times and every time we've asked them to, to actually do stuff, they're not doing it. It's like they sit at a desk and just do a desk job. They don't get off the, the backside and investigate the case proper. I mean, you expect it's a case. Go to the area it happened, speak to people, go and have a look at the scene. No, test the DNA you've got. No, uh, test what's happened where someone's won the appeal and the appeal judge just says the statements that were made are a complete uh, waste of space. So if they're okay to release someone else, they should have released me at the same time because the evidence there. And like... Uh, because what was in the undisclosed opened our eyes. We're thinking, wow, could it be other other people? We don't know. How many done it? We don't know. It's just weird how, excuse me, nobody's seen nothing. I mean, you've got one person whose evidence was exchanged for someone else's appeal. Now, this person said she's seen a man struggling outside the betting shop with the manager. And then she said she's seen her other man leaning against the lamppost. She said she didn't get a good view of him, but she went past and turned around. So when we went on, ID, on the identification parade, I wasn't ID because I wasn't there. Someone else was picked out on my, my ID. And the person who was picked out at the time, I don't know... He was, uh, he was with my sister. And then he went on the ID. Didn't know at the time whether the ID parades were wrong because his brief was like, was fine with the ID parade. He got picked out. It was about, I don't know, it was two or three people got picked out. Never picked out. There's no forensic evidence. There's no trace of fibre of me, him or any, any, anybody else linked to it. Now, all they had was a false confession which was coerced, threatened, attacked out of me and then pressurised to actually put the hands up in court because somebody decided to uh, involve other other people who were notorious crooks. So how did it go from 12-year parole eligibility to 36 years? No, mine was 15. 15, so yeah. 36. Yeah. How did it stretch that long? Uh, because when I should have had my first review, I was in Whitemore. I was shanghai to Long Run. So then when Whitemore were told to do the paperwork, they told, well, he, he's not here. So, so they decided to come and see me at, in Long Run after months. After I said, go on, jog on. I said, you should have done these reports months ago. Ta-da. So I just didn't speak to them. So everyone after that was... Knocked back until my 12th one. And basically it was all the time. Stance of innocence. Your behaviour in jail. Oh, I know quite a few people who were fighting their cases didn't behave in jail. You know what I mean? 
So if you protest your innocence, do they view that as not showing remorse? That's right, yeah. So they're going to aggravate you? Yeah, yeah. Catch-22. Yeah, yeah. So how did you finally get out then? Uh, on my last review, they decided, the parole board, that the case wasn't an issue because they were aware of my continued stance on it. And I think there was a few people there that could probably be like that. Well, what way should we go? Because uh, there's a couple of people there from organisations that were fighting on my behalf. We're not allowed to speak, but you could watch what what was going on. So I was surprised when I come back and said, yeah, you can, uh, you can be handled in society. I was already... Uh, working in the kitchen, which for me was mad because it was outside the jail. You had to go to reception, get a green book to be rattled out to go and work in the jail. And then I was already going out on home leaves and town visits, so I was uh, uh, climatising to the outside world. How much did the world transform from when you went into that? Most of it. I mean, what when I first... Things, what struck you the most? I think traffic, because when I first come out, I like the traffic, I'm like that, wow. You know what I mean? But I think uh, they they took you out on uh, the first two, and I'm thinking, what can I buy to take back? So on my first two, I was in uh, Guy's Marsh, and I went to uh, a little place uh, called... What, 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 oh, I can't remember the place. It was a little town... And I come back with a big massive pineapple like that. And I was like, that. only you could have come back with that. <laughs> and then I, I went to Bournemouth on the next two. Then when I went up to, there, to Kenya, I had to wait 12 months until I was near the next review. And then I went out with a member of staff on the first one. Then after that, they left, I went out on, on my own. And then I went out for a day for, the, for home leave, then built it up to five days. So I used to go and stay in a hostel in Edgbeth, for five days, and my family used to come and pick me up. My cousin or my brother would pick me up. They'd take me around to their families. So I used to go to the hostels, and I'd get up, go straight out, and wouldn't come back till I was due back in, knowing the night, so I was with family. So they would take me, families, having meals, take me out, buy me stuff, so. That day they let you out on your own, first time on your own, mm -hmm. what did you do? Uh, I think, uh, what did I do the first one? Uh, I think I went round to my cousins. There was a few people there. Some of them I knew, some of them I I didn't know. And I think we went and had a meal. I think they took me to a place in McGull, to a to a pub that used to do the meals. And I think the first thing I had, I had one of them sundays. No, they had a little glass like that. But I said, give us your big one. And the glass was about that big. <laughs> and they're all looking at me and saying, you're not going to eat that, are you? I went, yeah, I am, watch. And I just sat there and that's <laughs> it all. You know what I mean? But yeah, it was, uh, even though like we're no longer talking family, certain members, yeah, they, I've, I've got to give, give them their due. Uh, prior to uh, what's gone on, I mean, when I started coming out, they were sound. What about uh, technology? Did that daunt you? Well, phone, oh my God. You know what, first phone I was given, one of my cousins gave me a phone, it was a Samsung, and like trying to type things in, your hand used to get, used to hit all, all the other letters on the phone, I'm like, that. oh God, it used to drive me mad, then I changed it to something else. Oh God, how am I supposed to use these? Even laptops. Had um, you had access to the internet in prison? 
No. So you got out and you go on the internet. What does that mean to you? Uh, as I say, I mean, it doesn't really mean nothing to me. I mean, I actually go on. I've, I've, I've got, uh, I've got my own website on there. I've got a couple of videos on YouTube. I've, I've done on, on my case. So did you find it quite easy to adapt to then? Uh, no, I think someone had to show me what to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a clue. It's even like with the remote control for the TV, how to reset the TV and all that. It does my head in and I get frustrated if I can't do something. I'm like, Because there was only BBC One, BBC Two and ITV when you went in, wasn't there? Uh, Maybe yeah, Channel Four? Probably, yeah, I think it was just four stations, yeah. And now there's hundreds. Yeah, yeah hundreds. So it's, it's uh, like, it just opens up. Another world, you know what I mean? So, well, uh, did you see like big changes in like just the way buildings, things yeah, like well, that, cars? Yeah, well, the area I actually lived in, that's mostly gone. It's mostly houses, the high-rise flats have, have gone, tower blocks have gone, and it's it's all changed. I'm like that, wow. It's like, as I said, I've seen it before. It's like they've uh, tried to kick the population out of Liverpool late and bring other people in, you know what I mean? So it's not a no-go zone or a ghetto area. So where it was once a community and people were tight with each other, it's like now it's not. Because I went to Liverpool Union in the late 80s, and when I came back to, from America in mm-hmm. 2007, 2008, and saw the waterfront, all the docks, all, all, it all changed, hadn't it? Yeah, uh, the Albert Dock, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was like, that when I first seen it, wow. It used to be like warehouses and industry, didn't it? Mm, it changed. Yeah. I mean, don't get it wrong. I mean, it changed for the good, I mean, doing that down there. But I think they should have done more with Liverpool like, rather than plant a few trees on uh, Princess Avenue or Princess Road after the riots. That's the time, wasn't it? And they trusted in, in improving the community. He wanted to actually kick most of the coloured population out and bring other other people in. You know what I mean? So, so Stephanie, it's been a long backstory to bring you in. Um, did you become aware of Ray before he was released or was it after he was released? Oh, no, it's only quite recent. It's, um, it's a mutual friend introduced us and today's actually the first day I've, I've met Ray in person. And it's uh, over the last couple of months, I've been really having a look at Ray's case. I don't have all the evidence. It's really what evidence you have. Some, there is evidence that's missing, so documents, so there might be some statements missing. But I've seen quite a lot. And when I first started looking at Ray's case, I, I, I was on the fence because it's hard to know, unless you're actually there, what actually happened. So I thought, okay, right, so how am I going to approach this? Um, I've got so many statements, very limited uh, pictures of the crime scene, and and I wasn't quite sure which direction I was going to go in, but uh, one of the first uh, things, I don't know, call it a red flag, um, was actually reading the CCRC rejection report. So this was going back to, I think it was... 1997, 98, around the time that CCRC first started. And there was a comment in there as to one of the reasons why they were not going to send Ray's case to appeal. And and I thought, and it made an assumption about what had happened at the scene. And I thought, given the deceased injuries, and I won't go into graphic detail, I'm aware that uh, 
the deceased family may be listening to this. Uh, so as to respect to them, I don't want to go into detail. But given the injuries he has sustained, I thought it can't be possible that that narrative has happened the way the CCRC described it. And I thought, right, I'm just going to go back to what I know best, go back to the scene, what has happened here. So I thought, um, okay, so we have this person here, we have, you know, it's in the betting shops in the back room. Um, we've got these plastic money bags on the floor. There's been a cord, like a plastic cord of some type has been used to tie him. And um, he's... We don't know how the offender, offender or offenders got in or how they left. That's not very clear. Um, but there are some little inconsistencies, and I've been reading about what was reported in the local press at that time. So in the Echo and in, I think, the Liverpool Post, uh, um, I think it's the Post, Merseyside edition. Um, and there just seems to have been a narrative adopted about what actually happened on this fateful morning for for the, this poor young man, um, the deceased, uh, the victim, and and I just thought that's not quite what I'm seeing in the scene, and that's and I have done a very brief review, it's like an interim review of my observations so far, and what I would consider are inconsistencies. So um, so I've done that, and and it's based mainly on the there there was a prelim post mortem report, so I know about the majority of the injuries, but I don't know the full details. So I haven't seen the full post mortem report, um, but. There just seems to be things that haven't really been addressed and, and I, I'm not convinced that the accepted narrative or the sequence of events actually took place in that order. There are, things, there are inconsistencies. And if you're going to get inconsistencies, that means that either an assumption has been made at a very, very early stage, this is what's happened, it's happened in this order, and then the rest of the time is spent trying to find evidence to fit that narrative. Um, it's more a case of trying to get a result as opposed to seeking the truth. So so there is that aspect. But also, I think one of the reasons why the CCRC rejected or refused to send Ray's case to appeal is um, that there were intricate details within Ray's confession that um, that they claim he could he must have been at the scene. However, um, those details... If the sequence of events is wrong, the official narrative is wrong, then how did that sequence of events end up in his confession? And that is a question mark. Not, you know, um, there were details. It's almost like, and this is just from my perspective, almost like somebody has studied the crime scene photos. There's that there, there's that there, there's that there. That's then ended up in his um, statement. And I'm like... um, it's too articulate. Um, and, and these were the little red flags I had. And I thought, it's just a bit too articulate. This was here, this was here. It's, um, you know, unless Ray or, or, you know, you've got a photographic memory. It, it just doesn't quite sit right with me. And I just think I have a lot of questions. So I am working on a fuller review. Um, there are also questions with regards to the statements. So, I mean, there are lots of statements that weren't disclosed that should have been, arguably, and uh, there are statements uh, mentioning from multiple people around potentially people outside the premises at the time that the the murder happened. Uh, So there seems that there may be lines of inquiry. So going back to 1981, that this was just before the Toxteth 
riots. Um, there, there are tensions already in the community, in the um, ethnic minority community and the police. PACE didn't come into force until 1984. So, you know, you don't have the provisions of PACE. And Ray, when you were interviewed, so I think it was about 48 hours nonstop you were interviewed. That was without a lawyer, without a solicitor, without any kind of advocate. Whereas today you'd have a lawyer and potentially an advocate as well. So it's, and nothing was recorded, you know, it's, um, I just have questions. I have quite a few questions and I've spotted some inconsistencies. So with me, it's to look at, what actually happened? We need the death scene reconstruction. And um, from wound pattern analysis, you'd be able to establish the positions of the offender or offenders. I think there was, there was potentially at least two at the scene. Um, well, one, I think one main person doing the attack. Um, you can work that out. Um, there's um, there's also the bloodstain pattern analysis. Um, that there's clearly one set of footwear impressions at the scene. Um, I've been trying to research what could have made those footwear impressions um, back then. Very, very difficult. It looked like a sports shoe of some sort, but I believe that there is a, a statement from a footwear impression expert, but I've not seen it. But I may have also spotted a second footwear impression, but I don't know if it's to do with the, the wood grain pattern, but I potentially have spotted a second one, um, which may indicate that, yes, there were two people there. I also think, given the time of day, it was busy outside, shops were opening. If you've got two, at least two people with the victim, which I think there were at least two, then you need one person keeping watch, at least one keeping watch, either immediately inside or outside. So, And you could be looking at both the back door. I think there was a side door, but I'm not, not too sure about that. And then the front door. So, um, because if you've got other colleagues that are due for work, would they come through the back or through the front? So it's, um, and I think the overwhelming thing for me is that I'm not convinced that the main motive was theft. I think the main motive was murder. And I, I actually do think that the victim knew his offender or offenders. They're... The, the number of injuries he sustained tells me that's not a theft gone wrong. That is, that is rage. There is rage there. And I do, I do think that they knew each other, but I couldn't say any more than that. Um, so it, it does make me think, um, you know, with Ray's case, I just thought, I, I believe in one of the statements, um, a lady said that um, she, she was employed in the betting shop. She didn't recognise you. So you weren't someone that would often go to the betting shop. I mean, we, we don't know if he, if, if there's anybody else in, in his personal life. We, we don't know. I mean, yeah, there was, there was an altercation or a, a verbal altercation the day before. Maybe linked, it may not be linked. We don't know the real things going on, but all, all I can say from the injuries he sustained, that was full-on, vicious, angry attack. And and I, I do wonder if there had been some scene manipulation to make it look like a theft gone wrong. And that's why I think it, the police may have gone down a different direction. I don't know. I still have more to look at. So I know I've gone over some of this with Ray, but I'll, I'll ask you some of these questions as well. Yeah. Why was Ray brought in for to be interviewed in the first place? That I can't establish. And, and I've read some um, police statements and it's, Acting on information, we then, and, and 
it doesn't say what information. So is it, um, did they look at, if they're focused on the primary most of being theft, they may be looking at people who are known in the area for theft, you know, um, where the victim had been tied up and or threatened or whatever, and maybe they've just gone and arrested who they could. Um, or there's been an anonymous source said, right, this is the person you need and where, where it's, like, it's not very clear. And I don't think you've ever established how your name was brought into into it? Uh, I've seen a couple of uh, statements which which were found in the undisclosed. Mm. One gives a person's name, saying that they give in, information uh, about a betting shop, and that uh, it sometimes people feed police stuff. To get themselves out, so we don't know. uh, We don't know whether the people who actually got questioned, as well, who were arguing with them, and the others who were outside, whether they turned out to well, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's vague. It's not. We don't we don't understand what the rationale was for why you then became a suspect. Um, and it seems very quickly you were charged, even before an ID parade was done. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, they had more than no forensics, but we know that forensics was limited back then anyway. But no one identified you at the ID parade. There's been no forensic evidence. We don't quite know what rationale is that the police have got for saying that you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then we have like this sequence of events, and and we have uh, we have a, a confession that is potentially a false confession, and then um, and then that was retracted when you, when you did get a lawyer involved or mm-hmm. when a lawyer was was able mm-hmm. to help you, and then when it get to when we get to the court setting, um, then there's the there's the plea. Your plea changed very quickly, and um, to me. Uh, Yes, it could be a reaction to something and it could be as part of, and I I do make a reference in there, like part of a fight or flight scenario. What can I do to get myself out of this situation? I'll do this and without considering what the consequences might be. So um, there there may well have been a vulnerability back then um, when uh, Ray was going through the criminal justice process. So it's it's a difficult one. It's... um, it does make you wonder, were sufficient lines of inquiry followed at the time? Because as far as they, the police were concerned, they have somebody, somebody who's confessed. They've got this confession, um, you know, oh, brilliant, nice one, result. Uh, but And then, but what, what concerned me was that despite the confession being um, retracted, um, no eyewitnesses, no, nothing. We don't know where this um, information came from that put your name in the spotlight in the first place. But they still charged him. They still went ahead with the prosecution. And it it just seems like um, a series of very, very unfortunate events. Um, I don't know. I am still looking at it. Right. Had you ever interacted with the deceased? No. Didn't even uh, know him. Did you have anyone who knew you who knew him that could link you to him? Uh, no, I mean, I know family of mine used to use that betting shop. Did you ever use the betting shop? I went in once on behalf of one of my cousins who asked me to put his bet on. That's the only time I've ever been in there. 
And what was the difference in the date between when the deceased, um, when it happened to him, and when you went in the betting shop? How how much time had separated that? I couldn't tell you. Probably months before that. So you've been this place once. You didn't even know the deceased. You get pulled in for this interview. Mm-hmm. It's like, what the hell is going on? Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, what is going on? Who who decided that it, it was me? I mean, in one of the statements, they were saying that they were showing uh, mugshots around the cop shops, uh, police station, saying, yeah, it's Eminem. So, I mean, the original drawing of my, a cartoon artist was supposed to have drawn the actual photo fits. He said he didn't draw them. He said he was told by police, you've drew them. He said he didn't draw them at all. So they tried to make out the two photo fits with me and me and the other fella. Don't even not like me. So do you think that your criminal history put you on the police radar? Yes. And then possibly someone else who knew about your criminal history gave your name in? Probably, yes. And that's what led to the sequence of events then? Mm-hmm. And then you're in uh, for two days. Did you say that you, there was you and another person in uh, getting questioned? Uh, there was other people in there who they were at the time. I couldn't tell you because I didn't get anyone's name. But there was uh, more than one person got pulled in and got questioned, in which they said they they actually give names in the people in the community and people in jail who they thought could have done the crime. They told you that, or did the police tell you? No. They said that. The person in the cell next door to me, I asked, tried to get me an adult yet to to speak to this person. I said. I asked him what he was in for. He said, the same as you. I'm thinking, well, what do you mean, same as me? So he said, I'll give names in of people who I think could have done it, out, who were outside and people who were in. And that's when I thought, well, you know what I mean? And then I started thinking when I uh, read the un, un, Undisclosed, where other people have been pulled in and questioned, and I thought, well, one of my own have been pulled in family before as he as his mate who actually knew me the the other two I didn't know them so I just don't know one, one of the things I noticed from these statements is um, there seems to be a lot of hearsay yeah. you know he said she said and, and these are people, and especially people that were in prison at the time. And then I think that there's been a lot of, I mean, I don't know how the actual trial went, but there seems to have been a lot of emphasis on what people have said. Hearsay evidence is generally not admissible in a criminal court, maybe, civil court maybe, coroner's court maybe, mm-hmm. but no, a criminal court. It's, um, but I think a lot of emphasis was placed on this hearsay evidence. Um, and it makes you wonder, is it trying to make up for the lack of, other, other evidence. Um, so so that was another little alarm bell that went off for me. Especially when you take into account, I think the appeal court said that the evidence from prisoners in prison wasn't worth the paper, it was actually written on. So they're actually stating that that's a load of nonsense, what, what people have said. So in my book, On Making a Murderer, I list the 10 methods that they use to mm-hmm. frame innocent people. This is based mm-hmm. on American cases. And... Um, I'll go over some of them with you guys. So one of them is then if there's no DNA, if there's no actual physical evidence, when it goes to trial, 
they create an emotional reaction. And my heart goes out to the family members of the deceased, but they create an emotional reaction by showing all of the wounds and the crime scene and the gory details. They're trying, you know, the jury sees that. They, they don't need physical evidence then because no. it triggers mm -hmm. part of the brain that they think this is so heinous, this person's got to be locked up. Did they, did they do that at your trial? Uh, no, well, I can't recall them actually showing any photos. Or did the, they describe in detail? I think they might have described it. I mean, they might have shown pictures, but whether they showed them to the jury or not, I can't really say. Okay, so another one of the things on the checklist is people who could help your case, for example, alibi witnesses, their voices would be ignored or silenced. Did, did you find that happen? Uh, my alibi, uh, she actually, on the initial application to the CCRC, she backed us. I mean, she was traced. Uh, people have been trying to speak to her, but she won't come forward. Do you think pressure was put on her? I think that it was, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. standard. I think definitely was, yeah. And then anyone who's going to say anything against you, against your character, those voices will be amplified. That's another yeah. thing. Did you find that happen? Uh, well, I would say over, 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 over the years, I think people have tried to say this and say that. But, I mean, during the trial, I mean, they couldn't really say nothing because the people in the area really didn't know me because I'd only been down there for a couple of years. So other techniques that I've learned from the American system is they'll give you very little resources to defend yourself and they'll spend a fortune on expert witnesses and bringing yeah. everybody in. Mm -hmm. Did that happen in your case? Uh, well, you could turn around and say basically, yeah, because, I mean, my alibi would have been my main witness because then the pressure was put on me to put my hands up to it. She couldn't then go in the dock and speak up for me. So the main person who would have seen me, and plus that morning I would have been seen by people going into the shop under their flat. I don't think they were ever traced in and asked if they actually seen me and actually what time. It seems to me that court is theatre, and whoever's got the most money puts on the best theatre show. Yeah, it's a drama. Yeah. Did they bring experts in to say things about you or about the case and make you look guilty? Uh you know what, I don't think they did, no, it's just the, I think it was just the normal people, you know, police, uh, whatever they actually did to actually make out us to be cold, callous people. Well, they're the experts, aren't they, the police, yeah. they're going to be believed by the public because the public trust in them mm -hmm. versus someone who's got criminal history. Yeah. And they, were they allowed to bring your criminal history into court? Uh, did they bring it up? You know what, I can't even remember if, if they did. I mean, if it, if it did come up, I mean, it would have shown them, OK, yeah, he's a petty criminal, which I admit, you know what I mean? And I've, I've always said, you know what I mean, does that make me a murderer? Mm. No. I mean, one of the um, questions I had for you was, um, did the pathologist give evidence? And yes... They may have done, but we don't know what the questions were like. I, I'd be wanting to know. The pathologist, I, I'd be interested to know um, how soon could death occur because 
because of the injuries and that's mm -hmm. why I have concerns about the official narrative. So, um, <clears throat> and also, you know, the, the pathologist had believed that from the wound characteristics there were two knives used. Was that ever explored? And I'm wondering if it was. So there uh, may have been opportunities for your defence team. I think there was but, knives in the shop that were supposed to be in a jar on the counter. I think there was two. I think someone uh, in a statement, they found a knife on the Kingsley Road. I think they, I don't know if they took a knife from my cousins or two cousins and one from his. And I don't think any of them were ever proved to be actually have been the weapon that caused the, they think one might have been, but no definite proof. Do you mm. think that the jury selection process was fair? No. What happened there? Because they were all, all Caucasian. I mean, there was, I mean, one jury was kicked out on the first day, then another jury come in, that was kicked out. Then the third jury come in. So I turned around to the beef and said, look, I want to see anything that's been printed in the newspapers these last two days that might some of these might have read, you know what I mean, that might have influenced them. Didn't happen. So they just carried on the trial with the with the third jury. I think they got the jury they actually wanted. I mean, there was nobody from so probably I don't know any coloured people that I remember on the jury. So I think it was an all white jury trying to people of mixed race. And given in the time frame that uh Riots had occurred in June, and some of them would probably be going up for trial in in the next few months that we were in trial, so it could have been an influence. Yeah, and um, the the newspapers at the time and the, the community, they were so horrified by this. It was such a vicious murder. Um, the police will have been under immense pressure to get a result, um, and... I guess, you know, I think it must have been more like a couple of days. They got their results, but unfortunately, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, with these other statements that ended up in the un unused, um, that were disclosed many years later, actually, there could have been other lines of inquiry, potentially other witnesses and potentially mm -hmm. other suspects. Um, and I don't know if those um, lines of inquiry, those opportunities were lost because as far as they were concerned, they had a result, they had the killer. They didn't really need to look at any further, so... Yeah, but why hide the evidence? So you then couldn't ask people... You couldn't put people in the dock and ask them certain questions. When you say hide evidence, what evidence did they hide? The two, 201 witness statements were not given to the defence for the trial. They kept them for over 20 years. It's only when they found out which helped his, his appeal because I think he, he produced a new alibi, someone that seen him. So there was evidence there which could have been put to the jury. He could have been asked some awkward questions about what about what was produced in in those statements. Other people could have been put in the dock and been questioned about what what were they here doing that day? Because these alibis of some, which looks like it's been concocted between the whole family to actually cover up, then you could have had the woman that lived in the flat. I had to run away for their own safety. She could have been put in the dock 
with a man, other people who said they overheard one of the original suspects and he's going to be found dead one day. So all these statements, if they had been available at trial, questions could have been asked. Isn't withholding exculpatory evidence grounds for a retrial in this country? Uh, it should be grounds for an appeal. appeal. Yeah, well, grounds for, for appeal for to to to, to essentially. I mean, it's so so much time has gone by. It's going to be hard to prove or disprove. But essentially, to question was this conviction safe? Was that criminal justice process that was followed? Was that safe? And was that a fair process? And you know, um, I think. Um, you got to. I mean, we don't know. We don't know if they, those two hundred and one statements were were lost and then found, or if they were indeed withheld purposely uh, because it didn't make the prosecution case look very good. And this is why I don't really like uh, the adversarial criminal mm-hmm. justice system. Um, my background is more inquisitorial. It's about seeking the truth, finding out what happened, even if it means taking ages or not getting results straight away. It's about getting to the truth. And um, and sometimes I think the adversarial system, I, I think it can leave itself wide open to miscarriages of justice if they follow mm-hmm. a certain route or if it is, like you say, like a drama, who performs the best, who has the most money, they will win the case. And and I think its judgments are made if you have like a, um, a petty thief, a petty criminal background, um, who are they going to believe? A police officer... Good standing, in good standing and mm-hmm. everything, police officer or somebody who has had, you know, the start mm-hmm. in life that you had. And mm-hmm. it does make you wonder, was that really a fair process? And and it's for that reason and for the potentially incorrect sequence of events at the original scene that I, I personally think the conviction's unsafe, but that's not my call to make, unfortunately. I mean, if you take also that other people have looked at the case and written to Liverpool Police, Merseyside Police, asking if they had any paperwork. And paperwork was found in the cells in St George's Hall where it hadn't been used as a Crown Court for years. So what was the paperwork doing? Just left it. It sounds like what you said earlier, you know, this guy, outrage, we can solve the crime fast. Here's our narrative, we're going to stick to it. It doesn't matter where else it comes about, and include that includes the footprint analysis. So you think if they'd looked, if they scrutinised that, it would have, it wouldn't have matched Ray, and it would have took them somewhere else. There, well, there was no. I think they only recovered maybe one um, set of footwear from you, which wasn't a match. But in any no. case, they've not found. I don't think they've ever identified. Um, there, there is a statement apparently from a footwear impression expert. But I've not seen it, so so I don't know how far they managed to take those inquiries. But they are, in forensic terms, they are beautiful prints. They are very, very clear. And I think, um, you know, the type of shoe, it shouldn't be that hard to determine the make, the model, the size. I think even the shoe size might have been different to your shoe size. So, you know, um, again, at trial, would that have been featured or would that have just been glossed over or just mm-hmm. you know not mentioned it's well, the yeah. same as you said like the footprints the money bags would would they ever had prints on because because people got so much coinage as well one woman went into a butcher shop on Lodge Lane and was paying for stuff with 50 pence pieces a man in a pub on Lodge Lane went and asked a, uh, a barmaid to change 
four pounds worth of 50 pence pieces. He said he won them on the machine. They watched them all night. He didn't go near the machine. He went back up and changed some more money for for notes. So as soon as they started speaking to each other, raising suspicions, he left the pub. So they, those are inquiries, actually. Yes, there are some statements that, that mention that, but I don't know if those inquiries were ever followed up. But what, what concerned me was how and why are those bags on the floor in the first place? Yeah. It's, you know... They they were found in close proximity to the body, but the safes, if I've understood it right, are in a different room. So were those bags originally in the safe? Mm. Have has somebody put them there to make it look like a theft? If mm. so, that's crime scene manipulation or crime scene yeah. staging. Or is there another reason? Maybe the victim had them and he was ambushed whilst he's inside, he's dropped them. I I just don't know. But to me, that's a red flag and it doesn't make sense given the official narrative that's been given as to the sequence of events. So so I have questions, and I think, if anything, mm-hmm. well, I mean, unless they're organised offenders, they, they may have worn gloves, so there may not be fingerprint evidence on those bags. Um, who knows? I don't know. It probably wouldn't be possible now, but um, there could even be latent DNA on those bags. Mm-hmm. Were there any traces of blood yeah. on those bags? Mm-hmm. Uh, were they handled after the victim was injured? Uh, but unfortunately, the crime scene photos that I've seen are just not clear enough. Um, yeah. What about the possibility that they ran into an un- unanticipated murder and had to leave the crime scene, f- leave the scene faster than they thought they could do it slowly and get everything out? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I mean, I believe that the offenders, offender or offenders took knives with them. There's at least one knife. I've not seen all the wounds, so perhaps there, there were two. Um, but the the cord that was used to tie the victim it looks like it belonged to a large spool um which i think may have been at the scene already and it's not very clear if the cord was originally from there so that that would show an opportunistic element so you got the planned element which is you're going with knives you're probably intending to injure somebody or threaten them um but then the tying up bit um which I have questions about when the victim was actually tied because of what you can see on the actual cord. Um, was that an opportunity? And um, and there was one of the things that apparently was in your statement, which is almost like when the crime was all finished, it's almost like um, you allegedly just stood back and then memorised what the crime scene looked like because that's how it kind of flows in your statement. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're there, peak time, you've murdered someone... There is blood everywhere. You, you're wanting to get money as well or whatever. Then You're not going to hang around and go, oh, the victim's lying like that with his arms like that. There's a chair there. And that's, that was, the, that was really made, what made me think there's something not right here with the way your statement has been written and the details. It's almost like someone has studied the photos and gone, right, that's mm-hmm. what you need to write down. And mm-hmm. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. That information came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where. And there's two other things. There's um, fingerprints on an em- envelope that was handed in to the police. We don't know what's happened to that. We don't know whose fingerprints is. And another point is somebody went to a dry cleaners with clothes absolutely saturated in blood. He said he'd been in a car accident with his parents. Now, if you're in a car accident, they're taking you to a hospital. They're not going to peel your clothes off. They're going to cut them off. No, I mean, if it's an accident and yet uh, nobody ever went and checked it out properly. 
Yeah, I mean, it'd be good to get get an explanation for that. I mean, I think uh, I think if, say, I'd been in a crime and I had, like, clothing, I'd probably be thinking of, like, destroying them rather than taking them to dry yeah, cleaners. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, because people are individuals yes. and they may do exactly. different things. So it may well be that there is a perfectly innocent explanation, but it would mm-hmm. have been good to know that that was follow- yes. followed up. On. And then, actually, the day of the murder, I mean, someone's... Someone's own family have said they were seen washing blood off their hands at home and weren't where they were told people they were. So then you ask your questions. We've spoke to someone's sister, didn't know I'd passed a lie detector test, which I paid for myself, and uh, they said his younger sister seen him washing blood off his hands and they were going to go back to Liverpool and get them on tape. So why would they say that they could have gone to the area where the betting shop is using all the back roads where the police probably just used the normal bus routes where they could have drove there and got there and got back using back streets. So, so Stephanie, what kind of problems are presented by there not being an audio recording of the confession? A lot of problems, really, because we don't know the nature of the questioning. We don't know, um, were they open questions? Were they, like, tell us what happened? Or were they, like, you were here, you did this, you did, you know, putting words in your mouth, so to speak. Um, in terms of the actual confession, I mean, well, I, d- I think it might have been you that wrote it, hand wrote it, or, uh, I mean, this is, we're going, we're going back many years now, so it's going to be hard to remember, but... It's um, or did they write us out? We we, we just don't know. Um, I think they were definitely they were putting words in my mouth. No, I mean definitely were because say one was playing nice, one was being mm. the bad cop where he was making the threats and he was in the face, banging the table all the time. Chew, 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 chew. It was mm. like, it's like as far as I was concerned, I wasn't getting it. I was there till I turned out to them and said, yeah, it, it was me. So so we, we don't know, because it's not been recorded, we don't mm-hmm. know if that was a fair interview process, but mm-hmm. given the requirements of PACE to be brought in, given, um, mm-hmm. you know, police interrogation techniques yeah. have had to be improved on over the years, mm-hmm. it does make one wonder, was it a fair process? You had no solicitor, no advocate. I mean, OK, that, that was... You didn't legally have to have one back then, no, or, then or be offered someone one. Someone suffering from different difficulties. I suffer from an in, incapacitating speech defect. So under stress, I couldn't get my words out properly. So I think an appropriate adult should have been there. Yeah, if, I do. If psychologists or psychiatrists are saying, I suffered, I was emotionally damaged as a child, what does he mean? Uh, then brain... In injuries, we were discussing this. I got picked up as a child and had my head smashed off in the wall. So I don't know what damage had been mm. done. So, you know what I mean? It's essentially, you, you were um, a vulnerable suspect. I mean, I'm not a chartered psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. I have an academic background in it. But um, arguably, you were a vulnerable suspect. And, you know, that's... It, I mean, the officers interviewing you may not have realised that at the time, but in today's day and age, yes, you would have been, you would have had a lawyer and an advocate um, 
is what I would have thought. So we don't know. And there's no proof as to how that interview technique was, yeah, yeah, interrogation. Yeah. All we know, know is that you were charged mm-hmm. very, very quickly. But then you've also got, if you look into it proper, I mean, you suffer from a speech defect and you can't speak proper. And then they're putting pressure on you to actually get stuff out of you that you don't know how to, to actually speak because you, you, you feel, you, uh, you're frightened, you know what I mean? Now, somebody should have been there, you could have probably advised me or even speak for me because they could give rise to them thinking, well, he's not saying nothing. What's he got to hide, you know what I mean? Especially when you can't speak properly. I, I've gone round to family's houses when I did go home to ask for stuff and they'd be standing on the doorstep waiting for me to get words out which I couldn't get out I mean they're trying to say oh, did, uh, some social services file school said yeah, he had difficulties school's got me down as a class clown and a loser who will do any anything for attention so I mean if because yes, absolutely, um, speech impediments will be difficult to say in your own words, you know, what you were doing that day. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes uh, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't speak for anybody, but um, it, it may well be that that line of questioning, it was no longer like the open style questions like it really yeah. should be, it was more closed. You were there, you did this. And then, you know, because of that mm-hmm. impediment, it, it may well have been easy if you say yeah. yes, yes, no, no, or, mm-hmm. you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I really no, don't I know. I understand but, what you're saying. Yeah. But as soon, I mean, as soon as they started on the third interview, which was in front of the charge desk, and they've got two photos on there, and they're banging on the table, and they're just going on, that's you, that's your mate. We know you, the two of you work as a pair, He's the bag man, you're the heavy. From information we've received, you're the team. And it was like, <clears throat> they're you, they're, they're him. So, you know what I mean? It's like okay. constant. So, Stephanie, you know, Ray served his 36 years, he's free. What do you hope to achieve at this stage by looking at this case? Ideally, um, if it's an unsafe conviction, mm-hmm. I mean, I actually, from looking at everything, I, I do believe that he's telling the truth that he was not there. Um, I was on the fence when I first looked at the case, which which is right, I should be on the fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what I've seen, there just seems to be, I think, a, a failure in the criminal justice system. So it's not just about when you're first arrested. I think there's failures there. But then when you are prosecuted, you know, on what evidence, there's a failure there. And then when you've asked... CCRC, please look at my case. There are problems with it. You've had the door closed in your face. So um, my my hope would be let's at least have the case. I mean, yes, you're out of prison now, but the fact is, if you've not done that crime, then why have you been have you spent 36 years in prison? And that has to be looked at. So we'll probably never get to find out the true offender at this late stage eyewitness testimony it well it was unreliable back then it'll be mm-hmm. very unreliable now and and to be fair those eyewitnesses that may lo- no longer be with us may not no, no longer remember um so if anything i think um, an examination of the process was it fair and should your uh, conviction be overturned that's kind of what i'm hoping for but at least you know um that i think there's been a series of 
multifactorial failures potentially in in May's case. Ray, do you think Merseyside Police has cheated you out of a huge chunk of your life and you yeah, deserve an I apology? Do, yeah. yeah, I do. They have. I mean, when you you're getting it in writing from a, a chief constable for the Black Police Federation that the police were openly targeting the coloured community in Toxteth at that time. So that tells you something in a nutshell, that they didn't care. They wanted whoever. It doesn't matter. It was a body. They were under under pressure. you got to think as well, these people got the MBE for this case. Oh, I think it was the Chief Constable's commendation. I saw the newspaper article. Um... Doesn't that worry you that they're just going to protect themselves? They're not going to want to admit any responsibility here? Probably not, no, but... When you know you haven't done it, and I haven't done it, as I said, I'm not an angel. I wasn't an angel out there, but I'm not a murderer. I didn't do it. I've had body language experts saying, looked at some of the podcasts we've done and said, there's no deceit. He's telling the truth. I've done a lie detector test with people who've took lie detectors themselves of question, how's he passed that? I didn't have the normal lie detector test where you put the thing round there. This was a different one in front of a laptop. Focus your eyes and red dots come up and can't figure out your eyes. I don't know what it does. And then you've got to sit like that on something, your chin on a, on a rest. And then dots move. You look at the dots and then a question comes up. You answer the question and you've got to learn. They ask you some mundane questions which is nothing to do with the case it's to do with everyday life and you've got to learn to lie on them questions or you fail if you move your body you fail if you pause you fail and I passed so that's got to tell people there's something not right so Ray is fighting to clear your name creating any blowback or creating any enemies yeah these Enemies out there who are doing everything possible to ensure nobody helps me. If anyone helps me, they then get targeted by two people who, who will abuse you. These two people might now decide to go out themselves and do a podcast and slag you both off. And then you might have to look like, well, legal action because they might threaten you. I've already had people saying they want to find out where to live. Come put a put it on us in the street, get me sent back to jail and then get me killed in jail. So I have to be careful what I say and the people who are helping me, I'm concerned for their safety as well. And do you think people in the police are targeting you? No, it's not police in the police, no. It's uh, people, I think one person doesn't want anything coming out. Why, after all this time, he should want the truth. And the other person has been a victim himself. But he thinks he knows better than everybody else that he's God's gift to the miscarriage of just as well. Ray, having that much of your life taken away, do you just appreciate every day now? I do. Well, I look at it from when I was born. I was born premature. So I was in the hospital for the first six months of my life. They said it was deafness, but I don't know. I wasn't wanted by my mum. I was wanted by my dad. But there was all kinds of conflict at home. So it was in and out of care until I turned eight. And then I went into care on a permanent basis. My family's, my dad's family wanted me. 
But my mother didn't want me to go to someone who'd give me a, a life. So my life's been shit. But I've, I'm in a place now. I'm happy. I've got a lovely wife who's great. Stands by me. She's, I couldn't ask for any, anything else. Would you yeah. say you're the happiest you've been in your life now? I'd say yes. I'm content. I just want my name to be cleared. Because, you know what? Walking down the street, uh, some people call it paranoia, but I don't think it is. Sometimes I'm always always turning around, watching myself, because you just don't know if some people might recognise me. You know, people might, when this goes out, but we have people nuts uh, turning up at, at, at the house. Oh, I seen him on so and so, you know what I mean? And then want to start giving my wife a hard time. Nah, he's not. You know what I mean? So I'm concerned for her. I'm concerned for other people that help. You know what I mean? All right, so for the viewers then who've sat here and watched this for the last two and a half hours um, on that camera there, is there any ways they can help you guys or support what you're doing? And what, you know, how can they contact you? We will include all your links below the video. Um, do you want to go first, Stephanie? Um, I'll have to give you that information another time, currently off mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. social media, sorry, <laughs> that's not... So, so if, <laughs> if, if people want to uh, support you, Ray, yes. is there a way they can do that through social media or yeah, any way? Yeah, they can, uh, as long as they're, they're honest and there's no ulterior motives behind them coming in, because I've had to reduce my Facebook page from what was on it, because people were giving it information to a third party. So we, this person was finding out everything I'm actually doing on my case. So I've got a website, uh, I've got a YouTube channel. If people are really in, interested in helping me, they can go and watch the stuff on YouTube. You can contact me, because we get people going on, but we don't know where they're from, because it doesn't actually show proper. It might show one day they're saying Liverpool, but they're not. I mean, someone went on the other day, it showed them being in... Uh, America and he wasn't in America he was in Liverpool so if we, people go on we always ask say right can we help you with anything and people don't respond so if people want to help and we ask them if they go on if, if they can help can they answer or uh, I can give them a phone number I'll have to, uh, if they want to speak to us you know what I mean? but we've just got to be careful that, uh, they don't, that phone number's not passed on to certain people. So Ray's links are in the description box below this video. Please go down, check out his channel and subscribe and look at what he's doing there. Honestly, you know, I did six years and if I'd have got to 10, I think I would have gone mad. And for Ray to come in after serving 36 years, can you imagine the mental fortitude to get through that and to go through all those challenges? So, you know, we salute you, man. And an innocent person is the only person who would be campaigning to clear the name because a guilty person wouldn't want anyone no. to be looking at it because it, no. it, it would just, mm -hmm. you know, it would, it would reverse around on them. So let us know what you thought about this in the comments. And huge thank you to Stephanie for coming in as well. And for, oh, brilliant, man. Thank yeah, you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for, for yeah. having us. Thanks, Stephanie, <laughs> thank as well. You. Fantastic. Yeah, well done, both of you. Cheers. Okay, thank you. Wow, what a story. <laughs> Good grief.